Hi, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. In this episode, we all get to have some revelations about revelations. By that, I mean my guest in this episode is the biblical scholar, Bart Ehrman, who's written a number of best-selling books over the years that has changed my own and many others' understanding of what the scriptures are all about. He's a remarkable historian and scholar, and I've wanted to have him on the podcast for a long time, and I was fortunate enough to find some time in his schedule following the release of his most recent book, Armageddon. One of his other favorite books that I enjoyed that we talk about is How Jesus Became God, and it describes literally how the biblical Jesus changed from becoming human to divine in the eyes of the early Christians and later on, and it packs some surprises, but perhaps nothing compared to the surprises of his most recent book, Armageddon, where we learn, which is a story about the book of Revelations, and we learn that one of the most common features of Revelations nowadays in popular literature and movies, the rapture, isn't even a part of the book of Revelations. That's just one of the many surprises and insights uh, that we got in our discussion. And I talked to Bart not just about those two books, but also about his own voyage of discovery from being a fundamentalist young man to ultimately deciding to become a scholar and historian and follow the evidence and uh, interpret the scriptures in terms of the evidence and the historical evidence. It's uh, a very informative discussion. I, I uh, really enjoy discussing uh, with Bart whenever I've had the opportunity, and I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Now, you can watch this episode ad-free on our Substack site, Critical Mass, if you're a paid subscriber, and those subscriptions go to support the Origins Project Foundation, or you can watch it on our YouTube channel, or of course you can listen to it any place you can listen to podcasts. No matter how you watch it or listen to it, I hope you'll be as entertained and as informed as I was with this episode with Bart Ehrman. Well, Bart Ehrman, thank you so much for being uh, on the podcast. You're someone I've wanted to talk to for years and years, and I have admired you for so many reasons from, from afar. So thanks for being here. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. It's, it's, it's great to be on your show. Yeah, well, it, it's, uh, you know, what I've admired is your, both your scholarship and insights into religious history and, 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 and the, the textual context of, of scriptures. But more importantly, your bravery and being willing to say what you deduce, and 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 I think for me that's that's the highest level one can can have is is is, is saying what we you know is letting your conclusions you know not having them in advance but actually deriving them and and then and then uh, you know explaining where they come from, and um, at the same time I must admit I've spent a lot of time reading reading your stuff again more recently in preparation for this. I want to, during this podcast also, uh, you fascinate me personally as well for a variety of reasons. I'm trying to understand your attitudes. Now, I know we all have history, and, and, and I find it interesting for me, somewhat dichotomy between, between the, I won't say cold, but, but precise historical examination of the scriptures and your clear, well, it seemed to me to be a clear in your heart love of jesus so we'll get we'll get there uh, <laughs> wow <laughs> okay then <laughs> okay um but first i i um uh and and as i say i want i want to talk about you've written a new book which is 
which is fascinating for me, uh, Armageddon about Revelations, the least, perhaps the least understood book of the Bible, least referred to, and and um, for many reasons, which we'll get to. And then, and then I want to talk about your earlier book, which was, which was, I think, the first book of yours I actually read, which is how Jesus became God, which is a fascinating historical examination of of something that people don't realize. And I love history of the fact that people assume perceptions were always what they are now. And, mm. uh, and in fact, uh, books that were written 2000 years ago, you might expect would have a, a slightly different uh, uh, set of perceptions. But um, um, and, and your, your examinations are historical, not theological. But I want to before we go into the history of, of Scripture, I want to, uh, I want to uh, go into your history, because this is an origins podcast, and I'm, I, and I, and I want to go back. So you were born, actually, we're almost the same age. You were born a year after me in mm-hmm. Lawrence, Kansas, which I've been to. I did a <laughs> tour of Kansas once trying to defend evolution against uh, creation. How'd I go? <laughs> uh, well, I think, actually, I think we won that, um, I think we won that, that, uh, that particular uh, problem. This is when, you know, this is when they were trying to introduce in high schools um, evolution into the science, I mean, uh, creationism or ID into the science curriculum. And, uh, and, and I think we, I think we, 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 we won that one. Um, Good. But, uh, but it was fascinating to go around in various campuses and speak and, and, uh, but you were, Lawrence, Kansas is a, um, I assume is a religious community. Uh, I'm assuming, I mean, you, your, your religiosity began early, but I wondered, did it begin at home? It began at home. My parents were, um, um, my parents were Christian and we went to church when I was a kid. Um, it was an Episcopal church. It, I think when I was a kid, my, my parents were maybe more kind of social, socially minded Christians rather than mm-hmm. particularly like theological or anything. But, um, but nonetheless, we went to church and, um, yeah. So, and you know, Lawrence, Kansas, Lawrence is kind of like Chapel Hill is where I teach now in, in North Carolina. It it's, uh, tends to be kind of one of those liberal spots uh, in Kansas, at least the because of the university, because the university's, you know, it's a, it's a fine university and there are a lot of, and so the kids, you know, the kids I ran around with, a lot of them were university, you know, faculty kids, that kind of thing. Were your parents, tell me about your parents. Were they, they didn't work at the university, did they work at the university or were they uh, there for another reason? So they uh, they met they met at the university after the second war uh, world war. My my dad was there on the GI Bill, and uh, my mom just got a scholarship there. So they were both from small towns in Kansas. Um, neither one of them was particularly academic. Um, my dad was in business, and he ended up being a salesman for a for a box company, paper box company, and um, made a good living doing that. My mom was a secretary. Um, and the interesting thing is both my brother and I, my, my brother's three years older than me and he teaches classics at Kent state. And so we both do Greek and Latin. <laughs> oh, really? Oh my gosh. From, from a salesman and a, a secretary. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, that, that I've often wondered about that. So, so the question is in the, in the household, obviously you're looking behind you and I'm a fan of books myself, but, but I mean, I've always, I've read voraciously and I always have, but, but, um, did they, did they encourage your love of scholarship reading, for example? I mean, you both became, as I say, uh, academics. Interestingly, my brother and I both did. Neither of my parents actually went to university or finished high school. Um, mm. But uh, was it early on a lot of reading in your in your house? So they what they emphasized was getting a good education. 
and um, because they they recognized that that's that was the key to success. They both had come from very small and you know not very kind of lower middle class families, and um, knew that based on their their having gone to college, that they had really you know were far above most of their their friends from high school, and they just realized that would happen. And so my brother and I just independently. Uh, we, we were very different from each other, but we went, we went our separate ways and we both just ended up loving education. So um, they didn't, they, they didn't push us very hard that way. They just wanted us to get good grades. They, they just wanted to be educated, but, the, but having gone to university, they did, maybe that was the difference was my parents didn't, they wanted us to be educated, but they wanted us to be professionals. I mean, if you think hmm. about a living being either a religious scholar or a classicist, that's not exactly what you tell your kids say, Hey, go out and be, become a classicist. That's a good way to have a, a, a living. Yeah, no, no, my parents were not happy with my brother going into classics because they didn't think there'd be any way he'd ever get a job. And in my case, it was because they thought that they considered the ministry a noble a noble profession. Oh, and they just assumed I was going to be uh, 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 in, in ministry. And so that's why they, they went along with it in my case. Okay. In, in terms of reading early on, I mean... Uh, when, uh, you, I assume, well, you say your family was kind of a traditional Christian family, and maybe you went to church, but there wasn't a lot of theology involved at home, I assume. So did no, you read but, the Bible no. when you were younger? Uh, no, not really. Not until uh, when I was in high school, I had a born-again experience, and that's when I really got into it. But yeah, well, in the house, I think they revered the Bible, but nobody, you know, we didn't bother reading it much <laughs> like, like like most Christians, we'll get to that like most Christians, yeah, yeah, uh, you yeah. like the bible and think it's absolutely true but i've never read it um yeah. and and i think that's i well i think in my opinion that's an essential part of the reason christianity has been successful people actually read the bible far fewer people really religious in my opinion but in any uh, case um uh uh and same as a jew i was brought up jewish and i i was you know i went to the high holidays and all the rest but i, I don't think i was ever schooled on the atrocities uh uh Oh, right. And only learned about them much, much later. Yeah. It was always well, defending yeah. or being or yeah. being oppressed rather than oppressing. Yeah. Well, ignorance cuts both ways, because, I mean, uh, you know, in, in, in your field, you have people people who are opposed to, uh, you know, to evolution or or think the earth was created 6000 years ago. They know nothing about it because they haven't read anything about it, yeah. but they believe in Christianity, even though they know nothing about it, and haven't read about it. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, cuts yeah. both ways. <laughs> yeah, it is fascinating that 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 sense. Uh, well, well, yeah. Well, in fact, I want to get to the people literalists who, in some ways, I, I've debated a lot of people, including and 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 among the various people I've debated, one of the people I I I, I wouldn't say respect, but I, it, remarkably, is Ken Ham, who 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 at least it seems to me, said you know we we're we've debated a few times at once on TV and 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 said more or less the truth, which is well, if any part of this isn't true, then it's all suspect. And so therefore, you know, and it, I agree with him completely. <laughs> yeah, except for the therefore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. In any case, you so so um, you you're reading. Did you read? Not, if you didn't read the Bible, did you read? You never I thought never. Did you ever get interested in science, for example? Or was you always more interested in history and and um, and fiction or nonfiction? Fic mainly fictions, fiction, science fiction. So I, I had terrible science teachers. Um, from all the way up, uh, I just had completely really awful. And so I just never developed an interest in science and I wish I had, because now I'm really interested and, um, you know, I read, 
I read stuff at, for late at, at lay, lay level, uh, a lot of science stuff. But once it gets past the lay level, I, my brain just doesn't go there, well, and it just okay. wasn't trained. But, but reading, being, being yeah. interested, I mean, that's why I write books for that are. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, that's the kind of thing, you know. I mean, I like reading cosmology and physics, and uh, you know, I've been reading, you know, evolutionary psychology. It's just you know various kinds of stuff that's unrelated to my thing, but. Yeah, growing up, it was all fiction. I, I loved science fiction. I liked fiction. That's basically it. So You know, it's interesting you know, when, when you say you like science fiction because it's, yeah. you know, it shows how bad schools are. Because if you yeah. like science fiction, it should have been a, a perfect jumping off place to get like science because, you know, one I is, know. you know, science know. fiction is, in, inspires you like science does. And, and in fact, I, I think that's what more or less what, what Stephen Hawking said in my book, The Physics of Star Trek. And it's, it's a shame because that's, you know, those yeah. same questions or what are yeah. what excited and all kids are excited by that stuff you know they are but you've got to have somebody who shows you why it's exciting instead of like i mean <laughs> and if the teaching is just absolutely boring and doesn't i mean oh my god you know just get me out of here yeah so, yeah uh, well actually too bad. I, i've explained my mother wanted me to be a doctor and my brother a lawyer because that's what good educated jewish boys are supposed to be especially for parents who hadn't gone to college and yeah. my brother did become a lawyer which is but but um uh, one of the reasons I didn't become a doctor is for that, for that very same reason. When I was going to school around the same time you were, who were your part, biology was just like memorizing the parts of a frog. There could be nothing more boring and tedious. And, mm -hmm. and I felt, I feel sad now that I missed out. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I've obviously educated myself since then, but, but, um, it, you know, all, that was around the time when, when all sorts of exciting things were being learned, including genetics and, and the, the structure of DNA, but no, it was all these ridiculous, you know, so in schools, we unfortunately uh, teach science as if it's a bunch of facts rather than a process. Interestingly enough, you know, uh, whereas as far as I can tell in, in, in Bible studies, it is taught as a bunch. I mean, people memorize a lot. I mean, I'm always, you know, whenever I've been on stage with people, including theologians, besides apologists, um, you know, they always remember all the passages. And yeah. uh, and it's a, it seems a central part of biblical training. Another reason probably I was by, by character naturally turned off by religion because I don't like to memorize things like that. But what uh, was your, I wanna, I wanna get to the, so you were a teenager when you had your born again experience. Um, yeah, I was probably, I guess it was probably my beginning of my junior year in high school. I was maybe 15, I guess. Uh, yeah, and um, yeah, I was attending a, I started attending a kind of a youth group that wasn't, it was a high school youth group. It wasn't connected with high school, obviously, but it was, uh, and, um, you know, I was led by a guy who was a charismatic fellow who, a uh, big personality who, who, uh, you know, convinced people that they had to believe in Jesus and, uh, thought I did. I went to church. <laughs> no, 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 that doesn't count. You gotta, you gotta have a born again experience. And so, uh, okay. <laughs> so I, I went for it and that's, uh, yeah, at that point I became, uh, I, you know, I didn't come like completely devout off the bat. I still, you know, I, I hung out with kids who were, I was on the debate team and I hung yeah, out with I debaters and I, I played sports. And, yeah. 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 So I liked that kind of thing. I was always a competitive guy. So I liked, I liked sports because they were competitive and wasn't particularly good at it, but I hung out with the sports guys too. And so it's like my life went on pretty much, except for I started developing this really intense interest in the Bible and in Christianity. But you weren't sort of evangelical in the sense that you were, you were, forcing your friends to deal with your your born again oh yeah no i did yeah no eventually it didn't take long before i started being, i converted converted basically my whole family and converted my girlfriend 
uh, and converted her fam most of her family. Now, which girlfriend? Because uh, you had a Jewish girlfriend for a while, right? Didn't you? Uh, yeah, I couldn't convert her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was wondering about that. Did you try or well, you did? I think right. No, no, I didn't convert. I, she, her, her mom was worried. We were sophomores when we got together, and her mom was worried about our relationship, so she moved her to a diff, different town. But <laughs> so you know, doing it on the phone didn't work too well. I, I now remember. I forget which book I was reading it in, but uh, a wonderful episode where you did talk, tell her to sort of accept Jesus, and she said, "I've already accepted God. Why do I have to do it?" And, and I think you said you just didn't know how to answer that question. It was a pretty good response. I was clueless. I was just. Because my, my whole answer, she said, well, why would I need Jesus? I've already got God. And I had no idea. I said, well, you know, if you got him, you might as well take him. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was good training for uh, evangelical, I guess. But is, is yeah. um, so, so it was just that it wasn't, you didn't have a, a, um, an epiphany or some, you know, you didn't see Jesus when you woke up in the morning or, or, or I mean, it was more the teaching of that, of I, that. You want to explain? I mean, did yeah, you have that, but did I that really born didn't have again moment when you felt like yeah. Jesus was talking to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Yep, yep. Kneeling by my bed, uh, accepted Jesus into my heart. My life was changed, born again. Um, yeah, one absolutely. day. And then later in my life, one day, one minute, like it was like there was a moment. There's a there's a there's a yeah. point in time. And I absolutely remember there was a later point in time, maybe a year later. Uh, you may not be familiar with this language. <laughs> I received the gift of the Spirit. So okay. for Pentecostal Christians or charismatic Christians who speak in tongues, and yeah, sure. that, that that's another moment. Yeah, That's like a step up. <laughs> that's when Ooh. you're ascending the spiritual ladder. So I had I that see. too. And uh, Oh, so did yeah. you speak in tongues? Did you, uh, did yeah. you do Pentecostal? Yeah. Did you move from, from the Episcopal Church to a Pentecostal Church? No, I stayed. Um, I didn't, but I did start going to a weekly uh, meeting in a charismatic group that met like on Thursday nights with high school and college kids. And, and we engaged in all those kinds of things. <laughs> yes. Okay. Now this, okay. Wow. Okay. And, um, and, but your friends, okay. So what made the decision for you? You went to then Moody, but you chose to go to Moody, Moody Bible college, which is where it's in Chicago. It's downtown Chicago. Chicago that's right. Okay. So that was, um, that's, uh, and that was uh, that trains people to be preachers. I assume to be. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a fundamentalist. That. Yeah, because they still they didn't know. You know, they just thought, look, you know, he's going to ministry. That's great. And by this time, they also were had become much more kind of committed uh, as Christians, and um, and so um, they thought it was, a, it was a they thought it was great. And it, Moody is a it's a fundamentalist Bible college. Um, and it doesn't at the time they didn't give a degree and and so it was a, in terms of education about the bible it was great i mean i learned a lot about the bible but in terms of an education it was terrible i mean there's no you know you don't take history classes you take church history classes and you don't take uh philosophy you take apologetics which means you know defending yeah, the faith sure, and, sure defending you know and so, so you know christian you, version of a madrasa i guess yeah, well, that's right, and it and strict rules, ethical rules, and strict, uh, you know, and it's um, so it's kind of a boot camp for uh, for fundamentalist Christians. Did, what made you choose? I loved it, by the way. I loved it while I was there. <laughs> was How long great. were you there? Two years, three years. Three. It's a, it was a three year degree, okay. and um, so I majored in Bible theology, and then um, 
but you know, I had this thing. I was, you know, I was a pretty good student. I, I was an okay student in high school. I mean, I was fine. I, I got good grades, but I wasn't really academically interested that much. But at Moody, because I was so passionate about the Bible because of my religious commitments, I became kind of crazily uh, in, industrious as a student. I mean, I'd pull an all-nighter once a week just to study. Just to study. <laughs> and study would be reading the scriptures? Or we no, were I'd be studying for my classes. Source? Were you reading I mean, third-party sources? Did you learn? Did you learn Greek then, or or no? Or um, I didn't then. I did after that. Yeah, when I, know I went that. to after that. But at Moody, I decided I just wanted to spend all the time I could um, learning uh, the Bible, learning theology, learning you know the the kind of church history, learning kind of these Christian topics. And I didn't actually at the time I thought I didn't want to learn Greek yet because I thought it would take time away from learning the content. Okay. I could learn so, but besides later. the Bible, when you say learning theology, you'd read you'd read theological books about the Bible or uh, um, yeah interpretation. Well, they'd be the so in in evangelical Christianity, there's a um, you know you there there are books that are just the, they're theological books. They're so they'll be divided into topics like theology of God, and it'll all be based on the Bible. But you know, it'd be Genesis says this, you know, and Mark says this, and Romans says, and you kind of put together the systematic okay. package from all over the place. And it's a little bit, it's a little bit kind of strange because you're when you're dealing with the Bible, you're actually dealing with different authors living at different times and and living in different places. But you're you're treating it as a as a unit, almost like you know if you're. It'd be almost like trying to study, I don't know, chemistry by bringing a quotation from somebody living in the 18th century and somebody living in the 20th century, somebody, and then putting them all together into that one systematic thing. And but that's what that's what they do for yeah. For in theology. fact, you make a point of people not treating the Bible like a book. It's, it'd be like taking literature and saying, "Well, I'm going to take a, a quote from James Joyce and then you know another one from T.S. Eliot and another one from Joseph Heller or whoever, and yeah. and 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 putting them together instead of reading one yeah. book." It's, it's an interesting, yeah. it's an interesting way of thinking. I think I might, you know, I, it's, it's obvious. I'm obviously quite skeptical of many, many aspects. I and I, and one of the things I want to get to is why things have been so successful. And I think, I think, um, I suspect that kind of learning is a really good way to indoctrinate someone without mm. having them think through the details. Anyway, that's my impression. But um, uh, well, it's that's kind of right because you 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 know if you're not if you're not focusing on a particular author or a particular piece of literature, but you're assuming that it's like every other piece of literature that it's in connection with, then they all sound the same. And so it, it reinforces the idea that you've got this set of these, these set of writings that are con completely consistent with one another. Um, and you don't have a way of breaking out of that mold. So it, in a way it's a kind of a closed system that it's very hard to penetrate because people have this mindset based on how they're reading these texts. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's that, you know, all of these things work effectively to, to, um, to get, you know, I mean, the point of evangelical things is to get people believing and stay, stay believing. And, and, and I've always been fascinated by how effective religion is. I kind of wish in, I mean, it, we saw in other areas of human intellectual activity, we could get people to um, become so, um, well, actually, I don't want people to become dogmatic, but become so involved. Let me put it that way. Um, involved, yeah. But you, you, you. But after Moody, that didn't give you a degree, so you went to you went to Wheaton College, which is also a Christian college, or yeah, it's a very it's a evangelical college. It's um, Christian evangelical. It's uh, where Billy Graham graduated. Yeah, uh, 
And for me, that was uh, a step towards liberalism. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But it was also a step towards, if you forgive, uh, towards education, because it taught things yes. other than other than yeah. the Bible, right? I mean, and, and no, in fact, it was a very, uh, it actually is a very fine school. I mean, it, it yeah. is, it is an evangelical school. When I was there, they advertised, and I think they were right about this, that if you take, uh, if you look at institutions of higher learning and look at the percentage of graduates who get PhDs, yeah. they were number four in the country. Yeah, no, I, mean, I, I know, uh, actually, you know, a wonderful physics teacher from Illinois, he went to Wheaton, and he's now an atheist, but he certainly went to in the time and got a, a good ed. So they have, you know, education in all yeah. areas. Did you? Did no, you, so you know, I, I did have some. Go on. I just can say I took geology there. <laughs> it's like it was the first interesting science class I ever had by a guy who was an evangelical Christian, but he was kind of rolling his eyes half the time <laughs> yeah. huh. about, about, you know, you know, creationists and uh, okay. uh, and uh, what did they call these? Uh, what did they call it? Uniformalism? No. What is it? What's it called? Where uh, everything happens the same as it always oh, has happened. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Where it well, all happens at the same time, you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And anyway, I forget the word, but you're right. And, and yeah. that's why he wasn't he wasn't a big fan of uh, the devil putting uh, fossils in the rocks to yeah. deceive us all. <laughs> so have you have, have you by the way, speaking of that, have you ever been to the Creation Museum? Have you? Is it, I have. No, I can't bring myself to do it. I probably should. Uh, well, you know, the as I say, the interesting thing is um, um, it's a fa it's fascinatingly honest at the beginning and then they pull a switch on you. As I say, I've, oh. I I. I was at there that day, the day it opened, and then I flew to New York to do a TV show with Ken Ham. But um, mm. and they weren't going to let me in, but eventually they they, they did it at the day it opened, and because I had a film crew with me, and I said, "Do you mind them filming me not being allowed in?" And and uh, it was the BBC or something, and they said, "Oh, come on in." And uh, but it's great. Right at the entrance, they say, um, "You know, they have two doors, and it's sort of reason or faith, and you choose more or less." It's really kind of, and whoa. And and then you know and they sneak you through that and then and then they after after all of that biblical history they take you out and they then they show you how science has basically made the world a miserable place uh, and then they take you and pretend to be a natural history museum it's a really a it's really wow. kind of a very uh, it's 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 well done in that in in that way but uh, um, that's uh, generous of you. <laughs> Well, it, you know, it, 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 it's well, they spent a lot of money on it, but it is it's I, I was amazed at the honesty at the very beginning, because if you come okay. in there, you say reason or faith. OK, well, I'll take reason. But anyway, yeah, right. uh, uh, yeah well, OK, so Wheaton was your path towards liberalization, but your degree was your degree in theology or what was your no. what was it in? No, I didn't take any Bible or theology there at all, because I felt like I'd. I'd done that at the place that really knew about those things. Yeah. And so why yeah. would I do it here? And, but I, I also, I, I wanted to major in English literature. It continued my interest in, in novels and fiction. Uh, and, you know, so I took a number of things that were really eye-opening. I mean, I took uh, courses in, um, you know, intellectual history, for example. Um, and, um, you know, just the, the regular kinds of things you take, philosophy and history and, and uh, English. I was a humanities guy. Sure, general completely. humanities. I mean, given your interest in history, you know, and as something I share, by the way, but not obviously professionally as you, you must have that that intellectual history, that 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 learning how to do critical analysis and historical thinking, you got out of that, I assume. 
Uh, yeah, that was a big deal. And, you know, it helped that I had done all this debate stuff when I was younger, because yeah. I always had to look at two sides of an argument and to figure out ways to make arguments and to take apart arguments. And so this kind of this kind of education really helped a lot, even though the, the professors were conservative Christians, most of them, yeah. but they but they, you know, they were they were smart people who had who had good training for the most part. Now, uh, do, did you only have to go to a year or two because you'd gotten some credits from from yeah. uh, Moody? Is that the way it was? So you just and is that the reason you went? You wanted to get your undergraduate degree. Did you plan then to go to graduate school or was it as a result of being in in um, at uh, Wheaton? No, already already at Moody, I, I realized that I was um, that I could probably go on and do graduate work. And at Moody, my idea developed my last year at Moody that I knew, you know, I knew that there were a lot of um, really uh, smart, smart people who had PhDs who were teaching in Christian contexts. But I thought I would get a PhD and be a Christian teaching in a secular context. And I thought I would be this would be kind of a mission field for me. <laughs> so uh, so I had I had planned that, you know, I'm, I wasn't sure wh what it was going to be. And I wasn't sure if it'd be in English or in uh, biblical studies, uh, but I I took Greek at Wheaton, and it turned out I was that that was something I was pretty good at, and so I I decided to um, that maybe that was the way to go is to studying the Greek New Testament. Okay, and then and and then you chose to go to Princeton Theological Seminary, um, which you want to um, and and again you know I taught at Yale for a while, and I know there's this School of Divinity which I visited every now and then. Um, uh, but does the theological seminary have any any connection to the university or is it completely separate? It's separate. And the way you distinguish them is if, if it's a divinity school, that yeah. means it's a professional school within the university. Yeah. And a seminary is a separate institution. Um, Yale Divinity School actually is a very good school. I mean, they, they, it's not, you know. Oh, no, no. Not, I, I, I spent, yeah. We, yeah, no, no, I, yeah. I'll buy that. No, it's, but, and a lot, a lot of places, most divinity schools, you know, they're academic places. They, yeah, yeah. They're training ministers, but they're yeah. academic, yeah, as opposed yeah. to a lot of seminaries, which are not academic. You know, they're really minister factories. And yeah, Princeton, sure. though, was both. So Prince, Princeton University started out as a minister training well, they, place. They all did. And, and then then it split into the university and the seminary. So they're right across the street and you can take. You could take class, classes of both places. I was wondering know. if there's that class turning around. When I was, again, in Boston at, 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 at MIT, I could take class at Harvard. And, and yeah, in fact, one of my yeah. good friends, by the way, did a master's in divinity, not, and he was an atheist. But it was kind of like the equivalent uh -huh. of doing a, a, an undergraduate liberal arts degree. He just wanted mm -hmm. to continue. And he was able yeah. to do it in the divinity school, which is a good place to be able to do those kind of things. So they're right across the street. Did you take classes at Princeton as well as the seminary, or did you? No. Not much. They're a bunch of secularists. What do they know? <laughs> okay, you're still so I, that, no, actually, your, that was still your feeling. Okay. Well, no, it wasn't quite my feeling. My feeling was that I was really interested in um, at that point in my life, I was really interested in biblical interpretation and in the analysis of ancient Greek manuscripts. And those are two things that happened at the seminary. At the university, they definitely had a religious studies program, and they had people who worked in uh, New Testament and early Christianity, but they had more of a kind of a social historical approach mm -hmm. rather than a uh, interpretive approach. Okay. And nobody over there worked in the specialized field of uh, the analysis of Greek manuscripts. And so basically, once again, I made bad decisions and decided just to take classes at the seminary. 
Well, it 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 didn't it it you came out okay. Um, <laughs> the but but nevertheless, actually, it was a bad decision as far as as far as you as a fundamentalist Christian is concerned, because it was it was there that you began, I think, to see the contradiction. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I understand, because you're interested in, in interpretation, and I I think actually, there, and this is I think even this is from your Wikipedia page. Realized the time there were five thousand manuscripts of the New Testament, and they weren't the same. And beginning to see discrepancies is began is what began to maybe convince you they weren't divine. Is that? Do you want to elaborate? Yeah, that's kind of yes and no. And so the deal with the manuscripts is that um, I had actually known all about this before, even when I was a fundamentalist at Moody. I wrote papers on it. That you have, we have today, we have about five thousand six hundred Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, and we don't have the originals. Yeah. And so we have to figure out what the authors wrote since we don't have their writing, but we have these later copies. And one of the reasons I went into the analysis of Greek manuscripts was because when I was a fundamentalist, I thought that God had inspired every word, but I realized there were places where we didn't know what the words were. And so I wanted to find the words. No, oh, I see. Um, and that, that in itself didn't lead me uh, away from the faith. What led me away from the faith was the place from, from being a fundamentalist Christian. What led me away from that was places where we were pretty sure we knew what the words were. And when you compare this passage with that passage in their original, what seemed to be their original words, they just contradicted each other. And I finally got to a point where I, I had to admit it that the, these two passages, they really do contradict each other. And I might as well give up attempt to show that you can reconcile them. Um, I've been trained to reconcile everything. And at some point, if you're just being intellectually honest, you say, you know, I don't think so. It, this is a contradiction. That's, that's the, what made me think. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the, what I admire. It's the intellectual honesty. I, I have, um, I actually, years later, I was invited back to an event at Yale for the hundredth anniversary of some lectureship on religion. And it was me and five theologians. Ooh. I was the token atheist. But yeah. I was amazed at how they were able to, like, do epicircles with an epicircle. They were very uh, intellectually facile, uh, huh. or, or, or not facile is not the word. Intellectually capable of of taking things that appeared to be contradictions and finding huh. some ways to make them not. And I and 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 I, I guess huh. I find your intellectual honesty refreshing. But you probably this, this a was lot a, of that. This is at Yale. Because, yeah, I mean, at the well, these school, were these were not all theologians. Yale. These were people uh, who came back to lecture about uh, God. One was in, yeah. two, one was from Notre Dame, a very famous theologian from Notre Dame, for example, uh, and who you uh, probably know. Because most most famous theologians and and serious biblical scholars, I, there's nobody at Yale who thinks that the New Testament is without contradiction. <laughs> they just, oh yeah, yeah, no, nobody these were, yeah. These were people coming to talk about um basically well um about god and and uh, um uh, and uh. and but i was i was surprised when i you know when confronted with the as inevitably i think anyone is the the apparent not just internal contradictions between the scriptures as different writers uh, write as you talk about at length in both books and in, and and in general but the contradictions with science um oh yeah but that's what I found amazing is that they could take these contradictions and turn them around and, and, and do this immense set of logical steps from one to the other till they came back and, and it was all, you know, and, and ma apparently made it seem consistent when it wasn't at all. I was, I was impressed by their, 
their fluidity of that regard. But but I'm more impressed by people who look at contradictions and say they're contradictions, I think. Right, right. Well, that's a trick. One reason it's a tricky business is because I think a lot of people who are sophisticated, who are theologians, think of um, theological reasoning as a, in a different sphere from scientific reasoning. And they see that as different from um, um, mathematical reasoning, and they see mm -hmm. that as different from sociological reasoning. And they, they think that these different spheres have different ways of justifying knowledge and grounding knowledge. And so they don't think some, not all, there's not, there's not like a view about this. There are millions of views about yeah. it. But one view is that it means that you can't really use science to discredit claims that aren't susceptible to science. And so when somebody like, um, you know, like when someone like Sam Harris or somebody mm. says that, you know, that it just, it's a contradiction of science that, you know, that, that to be religious, you have to disbelieve science. They just, these people just roll their eyes and say, no, actually it doesn't work that way because they, it, it, you know, scientific knowledge. It's not that they really believe there's an Adam and Eve or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no, but although some, but they think that they're, that God talk yeah. somehow isn't kind of confined within the you know the, the, the ways of science. You know, that's fa interesting. I, I wasn't. It, you just reminded me of something I wasn't going to bring up, but it, 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 I've as I say, I've had chances over the years, including at the Vatican, but to speak to many theologians because I used to get invited to lots of different places, and. um and I always ask the theologian one question, because in my opinion, theology is not, um, theology itself uh, is not an area of scholarship, of what I would call academic scholarship in the sense, and I, and I confronted them by asking the following question. I'd say, give me one example in the last 500 years of a contribution to knowledge that theology has provided. Now, I'm not talking about history or philosophy, yeah, yeah. but, yeah, and, yeah. I know. and I always got the same answer. Which, which I guess well, the way you talk about it makes it clear. Every single time the answer was, what do you mean by knowledge? Uh -huh. And yeah. I thought that was fascinating. I didn't quite, you know, it really shocked me at the time, but in the context of what you're saying, it makes it clear, like what, what do you, and, and, and I would always say, well, you know, if I asked a chemist or a biologist or a historian, they'd, they'd tell me right off. They wouldn't ask that question, what do you mean by knowledge? And I think in some sense they have to, right? Because you have to assume somehow in order to account for all this, you have to assume that there's some that there's some distinction between knowledge and the rest of the world and knowledge of of God. Well, you you know, you, theologians do think that they've made progress on certain issues, but since nothing is testable, it's not knowledge in the same sense. I mean, you can't. How do you show that you know a particular theological view is right or wrong? And it doesn't work in the same way that you can where you can do some you know. Some have an experiment or something. Well, in philosophy, you can, but I, I guess that's what I'm saying. I mean, it seems to me what I used yeah. to argue, I don't want to be too contra too controversial here or contradictory here, but I, I, I used to say, well, you could take theology and you could take the parts for the useful. There's history, there's literary criticism, there's philosophy, there's logic, put them in their relative departments, and then there's nothing left. <laughs> and yeah, what's, I, I, yeah, no, I, I, look, I'm on your side on this, but I will, but they would say that you're, that, it's different because it has a different subject and it has a different grounding. Um, and I know people who are not in that world just think, man, that's, I don't know, they stuck their head in the ground. But as you, you as you've experienced, there's some very smart people doing this. <laughs> remarkably so, smart and remarkably yeah, yeah, yeah. literate. And, well, you know, it's yeah. really fascinating to me. And, 
and I want to, yeah, well, we'll get to that in the context of your, of your writing later, because I'm, well, anyway, we'll get to it. I want to, I want to go in a circle. I want to start with you and I want to end with you, but if we, in six or eight hours from now, no, hopefully not. Okay. It's um, all about me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I'm, and, you know, you're the interesting person that I wanted to talk to because, and, and I, and I, and I've learned a lot just both listening to you and reading you and I appreciate it, but, but, um, uh, the, the one it, it, just as you talked about the road to belief that while well, it was pretty quick there it was a burn again moment you want to talk about the road to disbelief i mean you started to get liberal but when did and the contradictions was it just the fact that there were contradictions that that were inherently there that led you to disbelief or was it or was it more uh, actually it wasn't that at all as it turns out that um the the contradictions uh, opened my eyes to the bible being a, a very human book mm-hmm. Um, and so this was probably my, my third year in my master's program. I started realizing that I just couldn't hold on to a, a strong evangelical understanding of the Bible anymore, Mm -hmm. but I remained a Christian for a long time. Um, I did my PhD. I was a Christian the whole time I was a PhD. I actually, during my PhD, I was a minister of a Baptist church, preached on the radio every Sunday morning and, uh, did funerals and weddings and things. (laughs) Yeah, a Baptist church. So so I stayed a Christian, and then I became increasingly liberal, I'd say. I, I got to a point where I was a very, very liberal Christian, where I believed, you know, I thought there was some kind of divine being in the universe, and that Jesus was the way that this divine being could be better understood, the, the stories about Jesus. I didn't think that they were, we literally knew everything Jesus said or did or anything like that. But I thought that, that the, the kind of the biblical story embraced in some sense the kind of the ultimate meaning of the universe that's backed by some kind of divine being out there is a very liberal view but at some point probably about 30 years ago i just gave it all up and it wasn't because of my scholar any of my scholarship per se uh, my biblical scholarship it really was because of uh, trying to wrestle with the problem of suffering and um you know whatever whatever one thinks as a christian i mean the the basic line is that there's a divine being in the world who uh, intervenes and helps people when they are in need and saves people. And um, I thought about it for a long time, read about it for a long time uh, in various fields, philosophy, theology, biblical mm-hmm. study. I, you know, I just, I got to a point where I just didn't believe there's a God who's active in the world. You just look around. You look I mean, around. It, just look around. So clear to me and so obvious, but but it's you just. I mean, there's so much pain and suffering among people who have no. There's no nothing redemptive about it. Sometimes there's nothing salvific about it. There's nothing good about. It. And you know, saying that it's all going to be made right later didn't do much for me. And somebody has to be tortured now so that they can have a nice afterlife. It just didn't make any sense to me. I so I finally gave it up. Um, it was after I came to Chapel Hill. I, I had been teaching here for a few years. Uh, well, you were was active Christian. in the. Yeah, I went to the local Episcopal church and uh, was act taught adult Sunday school for some years. And so, while you were then, at Rutgers before, no, no, then you were still. Uh, yeah, at Rutgers, I was still uh, active as a Christian and in, in a church, right. and um, so my, you know, it's That's kind of strange moving to North Carolina to become a away from New Jersey <laughs> yeah, to North Carolina to become a, to lose your faith is kind of the opposite of most people. I yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. Who would have thought? But. Yeah, I know, but I, I just, um, I just got to a point where I couldn't accept it anymore, and so, um, you know, left it. Now, okay, now you call yourself agnostic, or at least written you're agnostic, but you know, I wrote a, I actually got, I wrote the foreword for a book called The Case for Atheism, 
and I had to read the book. It's an old book, so you may know the book. But but um, but I figured if I was going to write the forward, I should read the book. And and um, and it was the first time he said something that is obvious to me in retrospect, and yet most people it it, it didn't hit me then, and it and most people don't buy it, which is agnostics are atheists, in the sense that. Atheists don't have to be, atheists aren't people, there's some atheists who say everything is wrong, there's no God, I know it, I'm certain, blah, blah, blah. But all that atheism is in principle saying is the stories don't convince me. I'm not, I'm not convinced by anything I've read. And, and that's a whole spectrum, including agnostics who say, well, I'm not convinced by anything I've read, but that doesn't mean, you know, there's something I don't know about. And, and, and I'm, do, you, do you buy that? Do, do you agree with that or, or no? So I have a different view of what atheism and agnosticism are than most people have. Okay. Um, when I when I left the faith, um, I I had the kind of view you're you're talking about, which is that the atheism and agnosticism are kind of on a spectrum, mm -hmm. and that agnostics are ones who say, "Well, I don't really know," and atheists, uh, like a hardcore atheist, says, "I there is no God." And yeah. and with that, when I when I became an agnostic, I had no idea going into it. That these that if you do polarize these two groups and have a binary of agnostics and atheists, yeah. they really are um, they really are antagonistic toward one another. <laughs> yeah, I just thought they'd all be kind of you know the same, yeah. but the way it worked out is that uh, atheists all in this this binary, the atheists all thought that the agnostics were simply wimpy atheists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't believe in God, but they're too like they're afraid to say it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the agnostics, on the other hand, thought that the atheists were just arrogant agnostics. Like they don't know. How the hell would they know? But like they're dog saying dogmatic they agnostics in a yeah, sense. Dogmatic. Yeah. But now I actually um I actually I call myself both an agnostic and an atheist Me too. because I think that they're talking about two different things. Agnosticism uh, literally means don't know yeah. in Greek. Uh, I don't know. So if somebody asks me, you know, is there a is there a superior divine being in the universe? I don't know. How would I know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if somebody asks me, you know, do you do you believe there is? Uh, I'd say no. I don't think there is. I don't believe there is. Yeah. And so okay. I think uh, agnosticism has to do with knowledge, and atheism has to do with belief. But it it ends up kind of where you are too it means that really i think both both are both yeah yeah both are both uh, both you know a, 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 it's if we just said atheism instead of atheism it'd be a little bit better because it's sort of basically mm -hmm. saying you know i don't mm -hmm. it's not i don't think of it as belief but rather a lack of belief or or, or, or yeah i try to no. actually as a scientist uh, i make it quite clear because i'm asked all the time do you believe in this and that and i try although i don't i'm not perfect in this regard in any regard um uh I try never use the word belief because yeah, I, you yeah. know, I say things are either likely or they're not likely, but, yeah. uh, but from this, if I, if I'm got my scientific, my scientist hat on the belief, there's no room for belief in science. It's, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that you probably know, I mean, you would, you would know better than me. That goes back to ancient philosophical, Greek philosophical traditions. Yeah. Belief is kind of a second category of, of, of knowledge. And, uh, so that, yeah, I, I would agree with that, but that's why I, I think they're two different belief. And I would put, I wouldn't say it's actually just a weaker form of knowledge. I'd say, in fact, it's a different category, belief and knowledge. And oh, so, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I guess, uh, yeah, uh, I, well, we're going place I hadn't planned to, but this is good. We'll try, I'll try and get to your books as well in detail, but I hope you don't mind having a general conversation as well. No, um, no, that's I'm great. fascinated by to talk to someone who's thought about these things in such detail, but um uh, see, for me, I'm an old-fashioned kind of scientist, and for me, there is no knowledge but empirical knowledge. That mm -hmm. that that um, 
there's no nothing that there, there may be wisdom from reflection, but not, no knowledge has ever been gained by revelation. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay. No, I'm a complete empiricist too. I mean, it's and you know, I'm a complete materialist. Well, and 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 you're. I mean, you can see the empiricism in the, in in your analysis. You know, you if you want to say you're going to say, well, what 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 could this pers gospel person have thought? Let's look and you know, it did this come from their writing? Let's see what evidence we have. And I and I did find it fascinating. I have to say, I found it overwhelming in some ways. Your your energy to be able to explore the details of the scriptures is something i again i i uh it's by nature i can't i i would i would never be able to devote that kind of energy to it it's just because to me it all it just all seems yeah. clearly i i don't want to say nonsense but it seems clearly myth and myth and and belief and and i guess therefore i tend to just sort of automatically by by disposition yeah. sort of yeah discount it no i get that I mean, it's like spending your life trying to, you know, analyze the truth behind a grim fairy tale or something. Well, what's the point? I mean, it's like, it's a fairy tale. But, but in my case, you know, I got, I got so interested in it as a, uh, as a Christian, that interest continued because I realized there's a lot of historical and cultural um, uh, importance to this material. And so I'm just, I'm endlessly fascinated by it in part because so many people completely misunderstand it, but you know, there, there are over 2 billion Christians in the world who believe in the Bible. <laughs> it seems useful to try and figure out what it's really all about. <laughs> and, 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 and it's great. And as my, as my friend, my late friend, the physicist Steven Weinberg, also an atheist, would say that in, in trying to explain that, you're doing God's work. And I would <laughs> exactly. agree. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, I think it's, it is really important for someone to be able to say, honestly, here, let's, let's talk about what's actually here. And someone with, you know, not, someone who isn't already typecast like me, um, but someone who's willing to think about it carefully and who has a, the a appropriate credentials as well, for whatever that's worth. And that's why it's so fascinating to, to go through this and see in detail why most of what is conventionally believed is wrong. My, I mean, when I think about everything from how Jesus is, was always thought to be God and accepted to be God, something you clearly demonstrate in, in how Jesus became God was not true, to the notion of a rapture and 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 uh, uh, and uh, uh, in revelations is also wrong, um, and and I think it's fascinating for people to realize, even, especially believers, that that these things that they commonly accept, because as you point out, people don't actually read it, are generally wrong. And I, I it's 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 wonderful and refreshing to for have someone being able to say that and not just say it. But explain in detail why that's the case, not to be contradictory or mean or spirited, but to say, I want to understand it. And, yeah. and I think that that attitude is great. Well, here, I mean, this is one of those places where the kind of the difference between a theological way of thinking and you know, in this case, it's not scientific thinking, but it's historical thinking. We're I tend to think of it as empirical still. It's, it's empirical in a different way because yeah. you, you can't, you know, but but it's it is empirical, historical yeah. way of looking at things that it's different because i can i i think i really can show that the earliest followers of jesus did not believe he was god that's the yeah. historical claim yeah. but if somebody asked me was jesus god uh, well you know i don't believe in god but i mean it's not like there's no way to show that i mean i'm like so i you know that's a theological claim that i'm agnostic on i mean i don't believe Yeah, it, although but... you would i suspect you'd be willing to say what i would say is that i can't say wasn't but it's unlikely 
Well, I don't believe it. I think it's wrong. I yeah, think it's yeah. wrong. But, uh, but it's well, not but wrong in the based sense on the evidence, it's unlikely. Would you say that? Well, there's no not? way. Well, based on the evidence of the context of the time of the developments that happened before and after, um, that I, yeah, of course. I mean, I think it, I think it's impossible. I don't think there's a God. How could Jesus yeah. be God if there's no God? So I, yeah. I agree with that. But it's a theological claim yeah. that doesn't have roots in the historical. Yeah. You see, what I mean, so the historical record can't help you know about a theological course, which claim. is which is very helpful for for religion. And and I I want to get to. It. In fact, I'm gonna. I'm going to get to that in a second. I want to. I want to kind of let, uh, ask some. Your books made me think even more about about how effectively religion, which I tend to think of as a con job, has gone through that con job. And I and and but but before that, I mean, I, I understand. I guess I, I I was going to ask how can you spend so much time, in the detail, analyzing each of these things. But but I got some perception of that in one. I think in the in I think it's the um, the um, um uh i think it's the uh, the the uh, armageddon book but i think you say the new testament is the most important collection of books in the history of civilization and i i that just whoa that just that just shocked me i i think i kind of understand perhaps the 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 context of that um but uh you want to explain that why you <laughs> I, say that i don't yeah no i don't think it's even debatable i mean i i mean how does one measure importance? Well, you measure importance in when you're talking about cultural, social, mm. uh, not just religious, economic, political. I mean, throughout the history of the West, by far, the most powerful institution has been the Christian church. There's nothing compares with it for the, for the long durée. I mean, if you just look at the last 2,000 years, um, which, which controlled not just like knowledge about religion, it controlled knowledge of science for most yeah, of the centuries. All, it was the only it was the only game in town. If you wanted it was to, it's the study, only game in town, to and and it's and it's all rooted in the New Testament. So what well, what book what book would compare with that? Well, I it don't know. I, I was assuming you came from impact culturally. It has had a huge impact. But if you think about, let me just let me try and be the. Uh, I'm willing yeah, yeah. to buy that, but let me try and be the devil's advocate, which is my yeah. natural state. Um, in terms of impact on the modern world, one could say Newton's Principia or Galileo's Dialogue to New Sciences in terms of changing the world in a way that allows you and I to talk across a continent without having to be beside each other. Um, so, so in terms of changing the way we live nowadays, I could, I could make the argument that, that, that those books, and you say collection of books, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Principia, the dialogue, maybe, you know, there's, and a few others, um, uh, works of Einstein and others have changed the world at least as much, at least the modern world as much, not, not integrated over history because it's only 450 or 500 years old. How would you, yeah. what do you think? I completely agree. Completely agree. I mean, Principia is, just, I mean, how do you even, <laughs> I mean, in terms of modern world, it, more people, more people probably believe in the book of Genesis than, than, you know the Principia, but but there's no or, doubt. No you know exists. we would we wouldn't we wouldn't look. The, we wouldn't be here. Our world we, would not be here. We, yeah, so that's why when you said it's the most but, important. But I say in the history of civilization. Okay. What about the compared to the Quran then? Given given what, what's happening in the modern world, um, how would you compare those? You wouldn't. Well, you wouldn't have Islam without Christianity. I don't think. Yeah. 
And the Hebrew Bible, of course, is massively important. But if without a New Testament, it would have been a, um, you know, it'd been a set of scriptures used by, you know, a few million people today. Yeah. Wouldn't be, you know, something used by two billion people today. Well, okay. So that, I, and I think what I was saying when you froze is that that, I guess it's in that context that I can understand why you have the energy to be able to go into such incredible depth into each of the words and the statements of people when you know those statements in some sense are often invented um yeah but you know look my my wife is a my wife is an expert on shakespeare okay and she goes really into depth she's a she's a shakespeare scholar duke she goes really into depth it's crazy yeah, yeah. No, it's and it's it. not because she believes shakespeare you know it's not because she you know shakespeare's it, it's it's they're power for her these are powerful texts that can help shape our understanding of the world sure but in a very very simplistic terms and the bible's like that but um you know and i think understanding the gospel of john it probably is more important to culture and society than understanding hamlet um if you just try and measure what we're, so for me it's it, for me as a university professor i think most people in universities teach things that they don't believe yeah in the humanities, especially. Yeah. I mean, you know, you teach mid me, you teach Germany, you know, 20th century German history. It's not because you want to be a Nazi. <laughs> you know, you want, it's, it's, you, you think, think it's, it's important, important. <laughs> for, for people to have that context. Okay. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and ultimately I assume, I mean, I don't want to hit you with this because it's look, the reason not most scientists do science is not because they're trying to save the world as I tell you, it's because they enjoy it. So ultimately yeah. you couldn't spend as many years and as much time and effort as you've spent under working through this, if you fundamentally weren't fascinated by it. I mean, it's, I assume it's a personal um, satisfaction that you get from it. Well, it is, but the thing with something like this um, is that it gets you into other areas that are tangential actually to the main thing. So I, I never, I never spend any, t I don't, I don't sit around studying the Bible. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, lately I've been reading all sorts of Greek and Roman moral philosophy, <laughs> you know, Aristotle and <laughs> Marcus Aurelius. And, and so, you know, it takes me into these other areas I'm just kind of interested in that relate. But the so but the but, but the the writing has to be on these things that people really, you know, find important. And 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 the fact that you have reached such a broad audience means you're obviously hitting a nerve. And I think that's right. I mean, again, not that I want to, bring, yeah, people will say I always bring things back to me, but that's why I write, you know, try and connect science and culture, because I think these ideas are important, but I try and reach people in area, in ways that they're intrinsically interested in, because they may not be, that's right. they may not perceive they're intrinsically interested in science, but they are. And so if I can reach them by Star Trek or some other, uh, yeah. other. No, well, no, thank God for people like you, because I mean, people like me wouldn't have any interest in science if it was taught the way, I mean, you know, you have to have somebody who can actually show why it really is interesting and what's interesting about it. And as you know, most scholars can't do that. <laughs> but yeah, well, that I, that's true. I, most scholars can't, but I think I was going to say, thank God, I don't sort of use those words, but thank God for people like you, because, and I should say, but remarkably, Christopher Hitchens, uh, because I would know much less about the scriptures if I hadn't read both of you. Um, mm. and, and, and because I, I wouldn't, I mean, I did read the Bible when I was younger. In fact, I read it and I read the grand too, but not with the kind of critical eye. And, and, um, and so it's, it, I've learned a tremendous amount. And, and, and my, my view, I wrote these notes to myself 
By the way, I learned something wonderful, uh, which was that religion is what comes can in some sense be derived from the from I guess it's the 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 Latin word cultus, Latin phrase cultus cultus decorum, which I just love the uh -huh. idea. As it uh -huh. and 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 you, and it doesn't translate to what you'd think. It's not a cult so much as as no. uh, no. cultus dorum is just the way you worship worship the god you take care of the gods yeah taking and, uh, care of the gods but i think and that's shooting but what what came out to me the 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 key i first thought maybe not the first thought but when i tried to put it in perspective both from how jesus became god and from armageddon is that as you point out serious religious scholars know about the discrepancies they also as far as i can tell know as far as I can tell from reading, then they know that the key stories that are so central to the religion that people go to church for every uh, every week and and celebrate Christmas for that those stories, like the three wise men and the virgin birth, are not were not even central to the scriptures. And so, it, explain to me how that's not a con job in a sense. If the people who are doing it know it, is it just simply because they think the ends they're evangelical at heart and the ends justify the means and if these stories will bring because they because they believe G jesus is god and therefore anything that will get people interested is good even if it's just even if it's not true even if it's not true even in the biblical context why why does why does all why do the central pieces of both the rapture but even coming back to the to the three wise men and all the things that i have seen tv shows on since i was a little kid why why do serious people who know that's not true allow that to continue as being the central part of most people? You know, they go to high to to midnight mass, and that's their religious experience. Yeah, so um, it's a complicated question uh, because there um, within 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 scholarship, of course, the people who teach at universities and colleges who teach biblical studies are. They won't agree with everything that I say. Obviously, there were disagreements, yeah. just like there are in the sciences about this, that, and the other thing. But the basic framework of, that I operate under is the standard uh, operating framework within institutions of higher learning, um, uh, colleges, universities, but also high-level divinity schools and uh, and seminaries. The problem is that most people who are uh, thought to be religious experts are not those people. Those people who are scholars, by and large, they teach their undergraduate classes or even their graduate classes, but they're not out there, you know, in a mega church talking. Um, and so you, whereas you've got pastors uh, and uh, evangelists and such, who really are the ones who have the attention of the audiences, and most of those people really do believe this stuff. They they believe in the rapture. They they're not they're not conning people. They really think they really believe it. Well, um, they're. They're wrong, but they, you know, and they don't, they're not interested in reading scholarship to find out that they're yeah, wrong. Yeah, because they know the truth. <laughs> they're not particularly I mean, inquisitive. Really, they know the answers before you ask the question. So, but yeah, that's but, it. But, yeah. but let's, but there are a lot of Catholics, let's say, and, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm, I was never a fan. I'm not a fan of the Pope in general, any of the Popes. And I know that Francis is like a kinder, gentler version of Benedict. I don't see any real difference. But anyway, but Benedict, you know, I was at the Vatican and I went, I was at a meeting that sponsored there on the far future of the universe and which was an experience for me. But, but, um, but Benedict was no fool. He was a, he was a theological scholar 
yet he ran and so therefore he knew the contradictions but he ran what i guess is the biggest christian church in the world right i mean most christians are catholics i assume i i I don't know the numbers but i bet yeah so i think in cases like that um the the analogy that works better for not analogy but the example that works better for me is that uh, my classmates when i went through seminary at princeton theological seminary Mm -hmm. Most of them are training for ministry, and most of them, most of them agree. You know, the gospels have contradictions. There are things you don't know what Jesus really said and did. There's no rapture coming. Most of them will not be preaching about a rapture because they're in fairly liberal Presbyterian churches. But they simply won't tell their people that they don't think there really was a virgin birth, or that you know Matthew, Mark are contradicting each other all over the place. And I assume that the reason that the Pope doesn't uh, go out with that kind of thing, why these friends of mine don't go out when they're in churches, they go out with this kind of thing, is because ultimately they think the religion is not about that anyway, that the religion is not about the uh, absolute accuracy of the Bible. The religion is about um, a relationship with God through Christ that isn't mediated necessarily through the Bible. Um, the idea that it has to be mediated through the Bible, that if the Bible has mistakes, religion can't be true, that, that is, that's a modern concoction. That well, yeah, is not but, how Christianity but, but, but is typically done. it's more fundamental than that. It's just, no, I'm not saying, yeah, sure, I understand they, they don't take it literally, and they, and they view it as a, an allegory for at least take, you know, because they believe in Christ as, as God. But, but if they recognize even that, that even the details of Christ as God are, are questionable, um, then is it, you know, I, you know, what came to mind when I was thinking about this is, well, as I say, I think it's, I assume it's from a fundamental belief that they're doing good work, that the best thing to do is get to people, people to accept Christ in their hearts. And even if they have to finesse it and, and lie or seduce them, it's still for their own good. And therefore it's okay to, 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 and you know, what came to me was, remember a few good men, the movie, did you ever see that with Tom? Mm -hmm. Just reminded me of Jack Nicholson. They reminded me of the, of a kind of gentle version of Jack Nicholson saying, "You can't handle the truth. You yeah, can't yeah, yeah, handle yeah. the truth. Yeah. You need me here." Right. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, great movie, but I I thought. Yeah, <laughs> but, one, but that came to mind. I, do you think that's it? That they thinking that people, yeah, yeah, yeah. if if most people saw the contradictions, they would give up their faith. Yeah. No, that is right. They give oh. up their faith, and and the person and the, the pastor loses the job. It's a job security issue as well. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a it's it's a it is a very big problem. Yeah. No, I, I, I do agree with that. And it's frustrating to me because I, you know, back when I used to, I sometimes still talk in churches and yeah. like, there'll be a church there and I'll, I'll go and give some uh, talk and there'll be people listening to my lecture and somebody will come up, this elderly lady will come up to me, She's been in the church for like 70 years of her life. And she come up to me and she says, well, I've never heard this before. And I'll look across, and I'll see the pastor. I say, you know, that guy actually is in the same class as I was in. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. reason you haven't heard it is because he's afraid to tell you. <laughs> That's why. Yeah, no, yeah. That, that part's yeah. not good. And the well, and, and the thing is, you can clergyman. You know, it's it, very hard. There's a cl- because you know, you're Dan, trying... Dan, clerg- the clergy project, as you know, I'm sure. Yeah. And I met a lot of people mm. who, yeah, that's their livelihood, and not only well, just their livelihood, that's their place in the community, and their wife right. and their or husband and children. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, they would be ostracized if they, if, 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 if there's all sorts of pressure to, to not speak about even one's own doubts. 
Well, I think I think before somebody gets to that point, they probably are in the point that you were talking about that they, you know, they think that they can do a world of good for these people, and so they're, you know, in some ways, um, you know, I've wondered. I don't know enough about your your world, but I mean, I imagine there are probably people who don't subscribe to scientific orthodoxies like a Big Bang or something, but they still teach it in their classes. I hope not. Really? Um. Uh. Uh. uh no, yeah. I mean, I don't. You know, there. The only thing I know of are people who, and again, it's only, it's only because of religious belief. There are people because I firmly believe people can hold two completely contradictory ideas in their head at the same time. Not only do I believe that, I know it. Uh, I can see it. Um, you know, Richard Dawkins talks about geologists, friend, people he knows who, who literally believe the Earth is six thousand years old, and then go in the laboratory and work on these, you know, hundred million year old rocks. Yeah, and so I didn't mean it like that. I didn't mean like at the same time. Yeah, no, I didn't mean it like that. I didn't mean that somebody like is a fundamentalist who yeah. believes that God created the world but teaches the Big Bang. I meant that they subscribe to some more complicated theory. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, well, I mean, I I like to think they would talk about it. I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not. It's. I guess the difference, and and to some extent, I notice this in the kind of scholarship. Um, it's not subscribing to theories, and it it, it I think it's. Uh, I've seen it in in theologians and philosophers, not and historians to some extent, referring, often saying this person thinks this and this person thinks that, and you know, taking you know in their scholarly work, referring to individuals and 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 what they say, but of course in science you just, that's just not the way it is. So I don't think of subscribing to a theory. I think it's it's. Um, the people aren't important. And moreover, it's, it's, um, yeah. it, it, you know, you can, if, if you, it, it, there are areas of science. In fact, my new book is all about that. It's the edge of knowledge. There's areas of science where we're, we're at the limits of what we can say. We, we know, and we know things, we, we know what we don't know. The book in, in England is called the known unknowns. Um, and that's where there can be vigorous, vigorous debate, but no one, I think, you know, we'll, well, actually, there are debates about things like even whether quantum mechanics is fundamental. But I, I think, mm -hmm. I guess the point is that people who view it as not being fundamental are open about it. There's no, mm -hmm. there's no yeah. um, need to sort of teach in class. I mean, I, you know, I, I was just had a dialogue with a with a wonderful physicist, Tim Palmer, who's a meteorologist and climate scientist, but he actually thinks that quantum mechanics is not fundamental. But he would teach quantum mechanics in a, in a in a class, but what he would say is, and this makes it appear that a classical world is impossible. And then I think he'd explain why he doesn't think that's the case. But anyway, mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a slightly different kind of yeah. No, it it's is. It's not. Yeah, I don't think you subscribe to schools of thought. I mean, there are fads in science, absolutely, and and science is a scientists are human, although most people don't realize it. And and you know, so people are dr driven by fads and preferences and peer mm -hmm. pressure and all sorts of the rest, the same sort of things. So so the the analogy I was having in mind is that sometimes when you teach something, you teach something that actually isn't literally right, but mm -hmm. the person has to know this so that you can build on it. Okay. And you don't tell them this isn't literally right. Uh, oh, yeah. you, you, you just teach the thing. And then at a later stage, they learn. And I think a lot of pastors are kind of like that. Okay. Um, you know, they, they're, they're saying, you know, in their head, they're saying, this isn't, this really isn't, but you've got to know this before I can go beyond it. I, okay. I'm not sure a lot of pastors, but I, I, I think there are pastors like that who are well-trained and smart and, and just don't want to kind of 
blow somebody's mind before kind of getting them ready for it. I sound like an apologist here. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, you're you're just more generous than me, I think, but it's nice. I, I, I think I think it's nice to <laughs> assume the best in people and um, until proven otherwise. And I think that I have to say, I mean, I can't when I read you, I can't help but think that your. Your Christian background, you know, affects the way the, the way you're, the, the way you're willing to view others and in a good way, in a good way. And um, and and. And as I do think that 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 you know, religion can can do good things for people. I just think it does more harm, in my opinion, and that's my problem. Mm. But but, uh, but yeah, no, I don't agree with that. But it's yeah, but it's not because I don't because I don't think it. I don't think I think that the harm that religion. I think I, I think religion does horrible horrible things. I think it does a huge amount of harm. I think that same amount of harm would would be done. If people didn't have religion as an excuse, they would use something else as an excuse. Okay, you know, that's the, interesting because yeah, one of my, uh, Weinberg's quote, which is I've always resonated with, which I never get exactly correctly, said there are good people and bad people, and I know you talk about that. You really at the end of one of your books, you talk about you really believe in good and evil, and and that's fundamental. <clears throat> and it's an interesting idea because I'm not. I even there, I have uh, I'm not 100 percent certain. I agree, but well, but, I don't believe but, in metaphysical good and evil. I mean, it's not that I think it's a metaphysical category, but I think that, you know, I, um, I think somebody who rapes and tortures somebody is evil. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I think we're, but, I think what Weinberg was said, there are good people and there are bad people. Good people do good things. Bad people do bad things. When good people do bad things, it's religion. That's what he. <laughs> OK, well, it's a good line. It's a good line. You know, I mean, when when, you know, religion right now, I mean, white nationalists are using religion like crazy. And um, but, you know, my view is that. What it does is it gives them leverage, but they would have found leverage somewhere else if they didn't have the religion. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I, I, for a lot of people, I think that's true. Now, I want to actually get to the heart a little bit more <laughs> of the meat of each of those books we've been jumping. No, but I think this is uh, I hope you agree. I think this kind of discussion is useful for people to hear, too. But but I do want to give you I want to get to the meat of this, because um, um, I think there are, you know, I think some of the general issues we've been talking about will um you know, will come up. And, and, and I want to start with how Jesus became God. Um, I want to go through each, maybe, you know, my hope is that, that just for your sake, that we'll go, you know, about two hours, if that's okay with you. Yeah, and then, and, and so the, you know, half an hour of or next half hour of that, or 40 minutes of that. And then I want to come back to you again at the end, if it's okay. Okay. Um, um, so the central premise of that book is that the, the Jesus that, that, most people think of as the Jesus that has always been, as the as the God and the, the Trinity, the, comp, the 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 complex existence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost all together and always having been in existence, is is not the Jesus, the historical Jesus, or the Jesus that that's arisen from the Bible, and 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 at the same time, the what what I loved about. Um, the beginning of of of, uh, of of how Jesus became God, not quite the beginning, but I, in in chapter one, um, and um, uh, it, it, you talk you you talk about uh, you give it you tell you you talk about a a, a a a story, and you and you give this story which I just had here, and of course I've lost it, and but I'll get it again again here, and, and right at the beginning of chapter one, um, and uh, okay, here we go. 
And you say, well, you know, there was a guy, let, let me, here we go. Before he was born, his mother had a visitor from heaven who told her that her son would not be mere mortal, uh, but in fact would be divine. His birth was accompanied by unusual divine signs in the heavens. As an adult, he left his home to engage in an itinerant preaching ministry. He went from village to town, telling all who would listen that they should not be concerned about their earthly lives and their material goods. They should live for what was spiritual and eternal. He gathered a number of followers around him and became convinced he was no ordinary human, but he was the son of God. And he did miracles to confirm them in their beliefs. He could heal the sick, cast out demons, and raise the dead. At the end of his life, he announced he aroused opposition among the ruling authorities in Rome and was put on trial. But they could not kill his soul. He ascended to heaven and continues to live there till this day. To prove that he lived on after leaving this earthly orb, he appeared again to at least one of his doubting followers, became convinced, in fact, he remains with us even now. Later, some of his followers wrote books about him, and we can still read about him today. But very few of you will have ever seen these books. And I'm like, what? And of course, you're talking about a, 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 a Apollonius, right? Um, yeah, and, yeah, Apollonius and so, of Tiana, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and so the, the fact that, you know, I've talked to people who say that not only are the kings Jesus is God, but the story, his story is so unique that that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons they believe that. And in the mm -hmm. historical, historical context, it wasn't that unique a story at all. I mean, and, and, and so uh, let, me, let me turn it to you. Well, that's right. I mean, people today, if you know, if you talk about a miracle working son of God, there's only one one option in mind. But the, yeah, that's part of the point of the book is that in the Greek and Roman worlds, there were a number of people talked about like this, who had uh, miraculous births, who had unusual powers, who were brilliant teachers, and, um, you know, who ascended to live with the gods at death. And um, so there we have stories of others like that. Um, so nobody exactly like Jesus, of yeah. course, I mean, yeah. and but nobody's like anyone else. I mean, they're all yeah. different stories, but they have these, they have these things in common. And so the idea that, um, that Jesus was the son of God for ancient Christians didn't mean that he was, you know, that nobody had ever heard of such a thing, it meant that he was superior son of God. There were actually people who wrote books about trying to argue which one of these was better, Jesus or Apollonius. <laughs> and, yeah. and what, uh, you know, why on did both Jesus sides. When do you think? Was it just an accident of history that Jesus won, or or is there something more fundamental? Well, there are a number of things. So I actually have a book on this that's called The Triumph of Christianity that uh -huh. tries to explain why Jesus and not something else. Mm -hmm. And the deal with Jesus is that there are two things. One is that um, the followers of Jesus said, that if you accepted him and believed in him as the son of God, you couldn't follow any of the other religions. Uh, and everybody else, you know, 95% of the world was pagan, worshiping many gods. Yeah. And in those cases, if you decided to start worshiping Apollonius, you didn't stop worshiping Zeus or Apollo or anyone yeah. else. You just, you accepted somebody else. But if you start worshiping Jesus, you got to get rid of everyone else. And so Christians maintained you had to do that. And if you didn't, you, you, you would be damned forever. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is Christians become missionary, whereas these other religions have no reason to go out and convert anybody because, you know, it's all good. And they, they were exclusivistic. Uh, they believed that you had, there's only one way. And since you, the combination of those two ended up leading to whenever Christianity would convert people, those people would be lost to paganism. And you do that for a few hundred years and pretty soon Christianity just takes over. You just reminded me of a book that I read um, 
by a, a, a biblical scholar, I guess, well, by a woman who, who basically talks about how more than any other religion, Christianity effectively, in a very short time, did away, metho um, methodically did away with every other religion, you know, made a point of tearing down the temples. You, uh, I forget her name, is it Maxwell? Uh, uh, you probably know her work, Catherine. Yeah, by the time you get to the uh, fourth century, when Constantine, when Constantine converted, he didn't make Christianity the official religion of Rome, yeah, yeah, but he made it an acceptable religion. And by the end of the fourth century, Christians are about half of the empire. And since they think God has rejected the other gods, they, they go after temples and idols and priests. <laughs> yeah, and, they uh, very quickly, I mean, more, well, maybe not more rapidly, but I, but what is surprising is they go, they, they flip very quickly from being oppressed to the oppressors. Yeah. Um, and, and they, um, when they do that, they give up their, when they were being oppressed, they argued for a separation of church and state, you know, yeah. the state shouldn't have anything to do. When, once they become the majority, they gave up on that idea and you don't get it again until the enlightenment of separation of church and state. Well, you know, to, to jump around again in your, in the Armageddon, to some extent, one makes the case. And although you don't say you completely subscribe to it, that part of part of all of this was was jealousy or desire for wealth and power that 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 revelations and the and the and the judgment was 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 basically saying you know and the, and rome being the the whore of babylon and um was basically saying we don't have a piece of the pie but just wait we're gonna get we're gonna get it all eventually yeah, no, the, that, uh, I think that's pretty clear in Revelation. It's driven by the desire to have what Rome has. They're, they're unbelievably wealthy. They're unbelievably powerful. They're oppressing everyone else. And, you know, we're the good guys. We're the ones who should have all that. And so in Revelation, they, the Christians end up with a city of gold that's half the size of the United States. Yeah. And, uh, and they rule the rest of the world with a rod of iron. And now they've got it. And so the whole point of the book is, you know, you're, you're, it's awful for you now, but man, you're, you're going to be on top pretty soon. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that's kind of interesting because that, as you point out, and I, and I, 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 I was kind of intrigued because you took it to a certain point and then I, I it got me thinking, I'm just amazed that the book of revelations is in scripture because it certainly seems to depart from the Jesus that you hear about who talked about exactly at least who is purported to have talked about exactly the opposite that you want to give up all worldly possessions and even and even in heaven it wouldn't be a matter of cities of gold it'd be it'd be sort of eternal service to each other and and you'd be rich because you'd have the love of you know i don't put it as well as you did but but you'd have the love of an infinite number of members of your new family yeah no, I think people, you know, Jesus says things like, you know, sell everything you have so that you will have treasures in heaven. Mm -hmm. And so people think, well, that means, yeah, well, you know, I've got this $200,000 house here, man. I saw that thing. I'm going to have a $200 million mansion up there. Okay. <laughs> and so but they're completely misunderstanding. Jesus, Jesus' point is that the material things are not what you're supposed to be striving for. But in the book of Revelation, Oh man, it's all about getting those material things. So why, but that's, that's my point. It is so contradictory to the rest of, well, not completely to the rest of the scripture. And I think we'll, I want to get there because I, I'm still shocked that you find Jesus to be such a good guy. Um, but, uh, uh, um, 
uh, uh anyway well, he's a good jewish boy <laughs> he's a good jewish a good boy jewish but boy. but i mean anyway we'll get there but i think he taught he you know he talked about you know of judgment and anyway we'll get there but um <laughs> uh um but but revelations is so uh, apparently different than the rest i don't understand why how it how why the story of why it was eventually included into the into the new testament yeah well the first thing to say is that it had difficulty getting in um for two reasons one was church fathers who were making decisions about these things uh were not sure that it was written by the same author as the gospel of john they assumed that had been written by john the mm -hmm. disciple of jesus john the mm -hmm. son of zebedee but there were they had reasons for thinking that revelation was not written by that same guy Mm -hmm. One thing is the, some of these people were very good linguists and they looked at it and they said, this is not written by the same author. It's not it's very like good writing. Mark Twain, James Joyce. It's yeah, not it was very terrible poor. writing. And then, and then. You, yeah, didn't you say so it was very low level? Week. I mean, they're grammatic. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I, last time I, I taught a, mm -hmm. well, I taught a class, a classics class for undergraduates. And I had my Greek students read Revelation, just chapter one and list all the grammatical mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know just like you know these greek students could do it and yeah. and so it's not very good whereas john the gospel of john is you know isn't like that it's 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 not you know it's super high level. high level greek but it's it's good it's good and so but revelation so, it's, so they thought well it doesn't look like it was written by an apostle but the biggest problem they had in the ancient world the ancient christians the biggest problem they had was not that it contradicted the gospels in terms of um, like domination theories and stuff. Mm -hmm. And the reason they didn't like it is because when it talked about what the Christians were going to get after the judgment day, they're going to get this enormous city made completely of gold. And it sounds like they're going to be, be having banquets every night yeah. and just kind of reveling in all the wealth they've got. And by the fourth Christian century, most Christian uh, leaders were urging an ascetic life where you deprived yourself of, uh, of, of pleasure, mm -hmm. um, whether it's a good drink or sex, or you deprive yourself mm -hmm. because those aren't the things that matter. And they thought Revelation's teaching just the opposite. And so, so they, that's why they didn't, they almost didn't get it in, but you ask why it did get in for a yeah. weird reason. You wouldn't, you would never expect. <laughs> and the re one of the reasons it got in is because in the fourth century, they were having these debates about, whether Jesus is really God or not. Mm -hmm. And if he's God, er, most everybody thought he was God, but is he, is he really equal with God, the father? I mean, or is he, he must be a subordinate di mm -hmm. divinity, right? I mean, he's gotta be like a second rate. Divin he can't mm -hmm. be as great as God, uh, but some Christians were saying, yes, he is as great as God. And they could use revelation to prove it because in the book of revelation on several occasions, God says, uh, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. So like he's before and after all things. And at one point, Jesus says the same thing. Yeah. I am the alpha and the, the omega, the beginning and the end. And so theologians said they're claiming the same, they're claiming equality. So they are actually equal. And so weirdly, the book Revelation was useful in uh, theological controversies of the fourth century. So they put it in. You know, that's why, by the way, I, I, it was an accident that I read both those books together, but I found it interesting uh, juxtaposition because one book is exactly mm -hmm. about that contest to try and decide mm -hmm. what level of God Jesus was. The whole book's about it. And, 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 and um, 
and the other is in a some sense w w revelations is in, in in one of the one of as you say one of its purposes is to is to ultimately one of its utilities i'm not sure it was the purpose of why it was written yeah but one of its right. utilities is to is to reinforce that notion that jesus is is god is not just a son yeah. you know a subordinate or something else um yeah by the way you hit you hit something there when you talked about the greek too which 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 relates to go back to this how jesus became god the greek of 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 the john who wrote revelations is poor greek the other greek is 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 good greek but as as you point out, that demonstrates that it can't have been written by the people who were involved, who were largely illiterate at the time. So the people who are writing are obviously a, a whole different level of education and a, and disconnected from the actual events of the time, right? Yeah. So the Gospels are uh, normally dated by historical scholars to um, well, Mark is usually thought to be the first Gospel written around the year seventy of the Common Era. Uh, Matt in Luke about around 80 or 85 and John toward the end of the first century 90 95 but Jesus died in the year 30 so there's about a 40 to 60 65 year gap between the accounts and the and the events that they narrate and they're written by people who are highly fluent in Greek Jesus followers were um low low class peasants from Galilee who spoke Aramaic and almost certainly did not have an education of any kind, let alone the ability to compose writings, let alone to be able to compose writings in a foreign language like this. And this is, they're clearly not written by the followers of Jesus, but by people who decades later had heard stories about Jesus. And so this is the big, this is the big task of uh, scholars of historical Jesus. Given that kind of source, how do you know what in these sources is historical and what in them is just things made up or exaggerated by storytellers in the intervening years. Well, this is my question though. Wouldn't automatically, when you hear that, especially when you know the sources, sources are oral, uneducated people who, who firmly believe what they believe, doesn't that automatically, wouldn't, doesn't, does, shouldn't there be a radar that comes up and say automatically it's suspect? I mean, if, if you were to look at yes. almost any oral history beyond uh, later, 30 years, five years later, much less 30 years later or a century later, if it's not written down and it's, it's, it's the original stories are true believers, it should all be suspect. And I don't quite understand why that isn't the, the prevailing assumption. It is, it is among scholars. So, I mean, historical scholars, this is, um, this has been an issue since the 1770s. <laughs> I mean, when when the Enlightenment hit, it didn't just hit science; it hit uh, uh, it history as well. And uh, in the 1770s, you have people starting to write about what to do with these sources because they're clearly documents of faith. And as time develops, people realize more about the oral traditions and things. And that so historical scholars have to use fairly rigorous criteria to to work through the gospels to decide what we can say with some assurance relates to the historical jesus and you can do it i mean because it's not different from what you have for for most ancient um ancient figures you've got sources written decades later by people who didn't know them but they've heard them heard about them and there there actually are criteria you can use that make pretty good sense to, yeah, to try you and figure it out. Yeah, you talked about a QML, looking for 
looking for independent stories, independent um, um, yeah. textual yeah. statements, writing styles, etc., that might suggest that the story is yeah. independently coming. It's hard. Yeah. Work. Yeah. Yeah. But but it's the, hard but, work, and it isn't the same as. But even if you, but I guess I'm going back, so I can I can see the detective work, and I admire the detective work of people who are willing to look at the text so carefully, analyze them, and decide which sources are are pre-scriptural and 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 mm -hmm. but even when you've done that the question i have is wouldn't you i mean so you can say yes these these are as close to the things the apostles might have been saying as as anything at the apostles of the time but but because they're oral statements of people who truly believed even you know even if you can focus in and say they're as close to the time as possible, they themselves are automatically suspect. I mean, in some sense, should, why, I guess the question is, is it, well, it's really the question of why we have religion. Why do people, are people so willing to believe stories that are handed down? Um, you know, I, I think of more recently the Mormon story, which is so obviously ridiculous, but is, you know, growing by leaps and bounds. And, um, why do you think it is that people grasp on and are willing to believe these stories without uh, substantiation? Well, I mean, how many people have uh, actually um, gone through the equations for general relativity? There's a difference, though. I agree with you. You have to believe no, the, the experts. Is that they, yeah, no, no, but the difference is it works. I mean, no, 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 is, I'm not, I'm, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, no, 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 I'm, no, I'm saying, no. I mean, so people believe it because my cell phone is a GPS and the GPS wouldn't work if I didn't incorporate general relativity. Oh, so but they don't know that. No, but they don't know. They, if you say E equals MC squared, people say, yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. you try, then you explain what it means and they say, oh, okay. Yeah. That's what the C stands for. Oh, it's a okay, okay. You know, I agree. Yeah. I agree with you there. And so, but they, so they, they know. So you're asking, why do people believe this? It's because people believe what they're told. Okay. And, and so, so I'm not saying historians believe it because somebody told them. Historians have to dig down, just like scientists have to dig into the equations or mathematicians, or I mean, people have to dig into the stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And with the difference is that you do have an iPhone. And as you pointed out earlier, um, theology hasn't come up with new knowledge. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. come up with new knowledge. So that's a big difference. But historians, um, historians what historians do is different from what scientists do. Historians have to establish what probably happened. Yeah, yeah. And 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 there are some things that are more probable than others. And so historians establish levels of probability. In that way, it's kind of more like a court case than it is uh, than it is like a scientific experiment. Well, no, I would say actually, it, I would I'd say it's almost exactly the same. It's just different qualitative levels, but I mean, or quantitative levels that way. When we do a scientific science experiment, we we arrive at certain levels of likelihood. And now our likelihood's much greater because we can test it. But it's you still test levels it, of you, probability. This is most likely true. This is extremely likely to no, be true. Right. This may be true. But you also you can also base it on predictions that you make. That's and, that's and the, and history history doesn't make those predictions. No, but, I mean, no, but hold on. But you do do it. I, I I've argued with people because I admire history so much. You do do make you do make predictions, and I think you describe in the book. You predict that that 
you predict, you say this, this part of this, of the gospel, I think is prescriptural. And I can predict that if it's the case, I'm going to see something similar in, in, you know, from the same kind of uh, linguistic or the same poetry in another gospel. So it's likely that that, that, that poetry preceded both of the gospel of, of those written things. So you're making predictions about things that you're going to say, I, I think this particular phrase or this particular uh, stanza is is significant and probably is more real likely to be original. See, I don't think it's the same. I don't think it's the same because I'm looking at, I don't make a prediction that'll be there. I notice that it's there and I draw oh. the conclusion. I don't make a prediction about what, that something is going to be discovered later and it turns out that it's confirmed. Have you never, has that never happened to you? I'm just wondering. Oh, no, I mean, yeah, no, of course. I mean, I mean but there it's kind of, it's more, it's not a prediction. Yes, but I'm, it, it's different because all we have are the, all we have are past events. That's all yeah. we have. Mm -hmm. We can't look forward to what is going to happen in the future if that past event had happened. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I and in fact, you but, can't be a prediction. I, of, the, re, the reason I'm harping on this is because, is, is partly because I want you on my side here because, um, you know, when I've debated about evolution, they always say, well, that's historical science. Historical science is different than chemistry. You know, talking about, you know, the, the early history yeah. of the earth, that's historical science. But my point is they're exactly the same. Whenever I'm doing an experiment, I'm talking generally about past results. I'm interpreting well, look, you're the scientist, but you're, you're the scientist, so you would know, but I don't think it's the same. I don't think that using uh, something like uh, Bayes theorem for like uh, for evolution or something is the same as doing a chemical experiment. No, I guess what I'm saying, when I even make in historical science, I make predictions. I make in predictions. historical science, you do. Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I make predictions that, you know, there's be a fossil that's a, a you know, a, right. a missing link and you find one, you know, and that's oh, yeah. and, well, that and, and, sometimes and, happens in history, of course. I mean, it yeah. happens. Yeah. Yeah. Of course that. Um, but it doesn't happen very much with the kinds of things we're talking about. Mm -hmm. It happens in other things. I mean, it happened, I mean, it happens in what was my field of expertise, Greek manuscripts. Yeah. You can predict that probably there's a manuscript that has that words things this way. We just don't have it yet. And then lo and hold it'll, it'll turn out that sense in reading your book. When you, you yeah. talk about the looking at in the detailed Greek about it, probably I expect this is there and, 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 or pro and, 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 and I, I found that fascinating. As I say, I was amazed by the amount of energy to, required to do it but <laughs> but um but uh nevertheless but l just take you know maybe spend three or four or five minutes talking about how jesus became god in the sense that there were these that, that the early there's a difference between john the and the john of the gospels and not the john of the revelations um mm -hmm. and the earlier gospels and and take us through how you think that evolved so um the deal is, is that we have the, you know, we have these four gospels and that some of them are, you know, they're written at different times. And the, the earlier gospels appear to be based to some extent on er, yet earlier written sources. And so in some ways you can line these things up chronologically. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, um, and you look at the very earliest materials we have in the New Testament, um, um, when you do that and you see how they talk about Christ, they don't talk about him as somebody who pre-existed, somebody who called himself God, somebody who was born of a virgin. The earliest materials, if you if you line them up chronologically, and you 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 don't base your chronology on this on these views, you you have other grounds for establishing the chronology. Once you establish the chronology, 
you'll notice that the earliest forms of the Christian tradition indicate that Jesus became a divine being at his resurrection. Uh, and the idea there is that he's a human and God, God was very pleased with him. And so he took him up to, to dwell with him up in heaven. That's a view that you get in these Greek and Roman myths about other people yeah. that when a person is taken up to heaven, they're made, they're, they're made immortal yeah. in Greek and Roman uh, a, a synonym for God is immortal. Mm -hmm. And so it's somebody who can't die anymore. So the earliest Christians thought that's what had happened to Jesus. You get it in Jewish traditions too, by the way. You, uh, you, you, you wouldn't have learned this probably <laughs> in synagogue or anywhere, but in the ancient world, you also have Jews who were taken up to God to, to be made divine beings. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. But so, so these, these Christians, that's the original idea. Jesus was exalted because of his service to God, his righteousness. He was taken up and made a divine being. That um, over time, people started trying to figure out, well, you know, surely he wasn't just made divine after his death. He must have been like divine down here sometime. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, did all those miracles. What's that all about? And people started thinking, well, he he was made a divine being at his baptism when he started his ministry when a voice came from heaven and said, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And then, and you find that in the gospel of Mark, and then you get, you get further uh, and you get uh, people saying, well, he must've been divine. He must've been divine his whole life. Right. And then you get stories of the virgin birth where he's divine because God has made Mary pregnant. And so he really is divine. He's like, you know, God, <laughs> he's, he's immortal by, by his blood or something. And so, but then you have people think, well, he must've been divine before he was born. He must've existed before that. And then you get the gospel of John where Jesus exists from eternity past and creates the, the universe and then becomes a human. Um, so there it's not that a human is exalted to be divine, but that a divine being has come down to be human. Um, and so those are two kind of basic ways of understanding who Christ is. One is that he's a human that gets exalted, and the other is that he's a divine being who becomes human. And all of that's happening within the first 70, 80 years of Christianity. And in my book, I try to talk about how it even goes farther than that farther, then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and to God and Christ being equal with God and always existing. And, yeah. and, and the other thing you point out, which I think is important, is that those different views of divinity— all existed in the in the pre-Christ world. It all existed in the ancient world. Different ways. There yeah. were there were, as you say, yeah. humans who'd been taken up and become divine. There were gods, especially the Greek gods who used to like to have sex with, and Roman gods yep. who used to like to have sex with mortals. Yep. And and there were ones who'd be, you know, so there were all of those and some who were kinds born. of Christ yep. were were prevalent in in the other yep. myths of the time. Yep. And so you have different Christians saying these things about Jesus that they were saying about various other people at the time. And uh, but it, but it, and it's it's a development in time because as as time goes on, Christ becomes more and more divine. Yeah. But it's not a completely linear development because you have people saying having older views at later times and views that became prominent later they were making earlier, and um, just like you know, you can't say that if somebody believes in a six thousand year old world that they must be living two thousand years ago. You got people like that now, and so yeah. you have more advanced views early and less advanced views later. Okay, there's three, three other things I would be, I'd be remiss if I didn't cover. One related to Jesus, and then two other related to the revelations. Um, one is a central part of all of these aspects of Christ being divine, regardless of whether it was all the time or, or birth or baptism. The one, the one thing that seems to make 
And I and theologians, several theologians have argued this for me that the one thing that makes Christ different is the resurrection. Is the resurrection is the real proof that he is at divine at whatever level of divinity you want to call it. And 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 you make the important point that that the that the resurrection itself is from a historical perspective quite dubious. It's not dubious. You can't prove that there's a resurrection. Well, not just dubious, but <laughs> but you argue that there are cons- inconsistencies. Oh. That there, if you oh, look yeah. at it, it's again on this likelihood scale. It's not yeah. likely that a that someone who's crucified would even be buried in general. Uh-huh. Much less, it's is it likely that that Pontius Pilate, who if you look at him as a historical figure, would ever let have let the Jewish priests have his body for that? And and mm-hmm. I mean, you you go through yeah. the, what's reasonable at that time to say. Mm-hmm. You know, aside from what people have visions of, you can never, I mean, it was Jonathan Sachs, I guess, or, or no, Oliver Sachs once said, not Jonathan Sachs, the rabbi, but Oliver Sachs, the, <laughs> the, psycho- the psychologist, neurologist, uh, once said that, you know, when people have hallucinations, they're real. So don't, you know, they're just as real yeah. as reality. So when people have visions, yeah, I'm willing to, I don't want to debate that. But the other historical aspects of the tomb, all of that are historically debatable. Um. They are the the first the starting point. Of course, you start with your sources and see what the yeah. sources say about an event. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the resurrection stories, uh, all you have to do is read what Matthew says, what Mark says, what Luke says, and read like in detail. They're contradicting each other all over the map in ways that cannot be reconciled. Uh, and so the sources they all agree that Jesus was buried on a Friday and raised on a Saturday. But but then when you start looking at historical evidence for those those things it really gets tricky because the um romans didn't didn't allow crucified victims to be buried this is part of the punishment they left them to to uh to rot on the cross and to be eaten by scavengers as part of the punishment so people will see you know if you want to you you want to defy rome okay well this is what you can expect then and so so the very idea of him being buried that afternoon and then um is is problematic the stories of his appearances are problematic. So everything everything is hugely problematic. And the interesting thing is that when you actually dig through the materials, um, again, if you lay, line them up chronologically and figure what comes first, it does look like very the earliest things people were saying was not that there was an empty tomb. The earliest thing they were saying is that, G, that we saw Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so that's where you get to your visions. And um, I think people did have visions. I mean, I think, you know, yeah. Oliver Sacks, you're right. He wrote a really interesting book on this. On yeah, yeah, a whole book, Hallucination. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but, but people have these things and they always think that they're true. And, but the thing is, this is the key point that even theologians don't quite get, um, which is that if a, if a follower of Jesus um, who was a Jew who believed that the end was coming soon, and that the end would involve a judgment day in which everybody who had ever lived will be raised from the dead for judgment. This is what Jesus taught. It's what his disciples mm-hmm. firmly believed, that the end of time was coming soon with a resurrection. They didn't believe that when you died, your soul would go to heaven or hell. They didn't think your body and soul were, could exist separately. If those people came to think Jesus came back to life, their category was, that his soul has come back into his body and he's been raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. They had, they couldn't interpret it that he's gone to heaven and his spirit has come down. Yeah. And so they naturally interpret it as a resurrection. So it all does go back to these visions and you're right. You can't debate them. People see what they see, 
but yeah. there's nothing historical that can suggest well, the visions. Yeah. So the, we'll accept that people had visions, but people have visions today. So you can be suspect. But, the, but I, what I found interesting was the rather interesting and clever history looking at, at the context, as you point out, it's context, context, context. Um, and, and the context of the time is that the, the tomb being empty and the, the fact even being a tomb is suspect. And the other thing you point out, which I, I found interesting because I keep thinking, how do these people who are evangelical people try and convince people, or I would say con people into believing this stuff. And I was intrigued that, okay, why do they have women discover him? And because there aren't many women in the, in the Bible, and you point out, well, from many points of view, that's a really good psychological tool to say that yeah. the women discover him. You want to, yeah. you want to mention that? Well, evangelicals often say, look, those stories must be historically right because nobody would invent a story of women discovering a tomb. Mm-hmm. And because if you want to, if you want to like really show that you'd have the men do it and man, is that ever wrong? I mean, for one thing, um, you know, a lot of Christians are attacked early on for being largely a group of women, <laughs> and they're like more women than men. And you ask who would make up a story of women discovering a tomb? Well, you know, maybe women, yeah. for example. <laughs> I mean, and the other thing is our earliest version of the story is all about uh, our earliest version of the story is in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark's gospel, the entire gospel is trying to show that the men disciples of Jesus never could figure him out. They just couldn't understand who he was. And so it would make perfect sense for the men not to discover the tomb. They're the ones who can't figure him out. That's the point of the story. (laughs) And so who would make it? Well, Mark would make it up. And so there are lots of people who would make it up. And I I give a lot more of that in in the book. Sure, of course you do. I can't do justice. So I don't think it's a good argument. I Look, I don't think these people are conning people. They might be conning themselves, but they, they, I think they really... A con artist is somebody who knows that they're wrong. Yeah, you know, these people, people are not kind of con others because they believe it. In fact, as, yeah, as Feynman yeah. once said, the easiest person to fool is yourself. So once you really believe it, it's yeah, really yeah. easy to find ways to try and convince others, which is well, what and they didn't the come to I was believe making it. at the beginning of the program is that I think the people who know there are these contradictions just say, well, it's okay because this, the story is really yeah. true at some level. And I don't want to dwell on the contradictions. I want to get you to believe it. And then we can talk yeah. about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I know. I know. Anyway, no, I'm well, that's I, why I write my books, because I think, you know, people need to realize that, you know, they're just I, I have no objection to people being Christian at all. Zero. Yeah. But but I think, you you know, you really ought to know, know historical facts and you it's better to be informed about the problems than to stick your head in the sand. I mean, you know, if you're not an informed Christian, you're an ignorant Christian. Who wants to be ignorant? Well, I think most people, well, I think most people want to be because <laughs> I think you're probably right. Find, well, we'll get to that. I think most people find that. Well, you know the the the, uh, the Dawkins Foundation did a did a study of people when at one point when in the census in England about a decade ago, they asked for people's religion, you know, and and they asked and then and and so the people who listed that they were Church of England, they, they I, somehow they contacted people, and they said, okay, so why do you believe in transubstantiation? Do you believe in the Virgin Birth? Do you believe that? They go, no, 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 no. Well, why do you call yourself a Christian? And they, I like to think of myself as a good person. So it's ultimately, uh-huh. I think it's some, as, as you say, people read and, and take what they want from it and yeah. pick and choose and don't take the things they don't believe. And, and that's yeah. most Christians, uh, you know, except the absolutely literalist ones that say, I'm willing to just sort of, I find it, make, it makes me a good person. And, and that's, that's why I call myself a Christian. Let's, let's, the other, the other, the other 
thing that you point out, which is so important in the new book, in the, in the newer book, Armageddon, is that, and, and at the end also, in the, at the end of the, at the beginning and end of the, how, how Jesus became God, you point out Jesus was an a, a, apocalyptic preacher. He was, his main role was predicting that the end was near. He's like the guys you see on the street now with the signs up. The only difference is that they don't have as big a following. Um, maybe who knows in a thousand years, but, but uh, um, so he was a guy who was going around saying the end is near, not repent so much, but basically repent, you know, fall, be good because the end is near. And he really at least believed it in what he said and the people around him believed it. And revelations, which is now through the rapture and in every, every era seems to be viewed as, as now there are signs that there's a, a revelation it, it, or that there's that the end is near was really written by someone who believed the end was near and this was this was then and it was about to happen and it probably and well so why don't you go into that <laughs> yeah so um so my book my book on armageddon tries to explain what revelation really says and one thing it does not say is that there's a rapture coming yeah that's that's, amazing. that's made up yeah. Uh, and you can actually date when that idea came for it came out in 1833. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing it when I read that. It's because yeah. it, again, it seems like such a central part of what so many people, people talk say. About. Yeah. The evangelicals believe it, but it's not rooted in the Bible at all. And and I try to go, I go through the passages yeah. where people say, "Oh, that's talking about the rapture," and I say, "Yeah, actually, it's not." Yeah, um, and you make it quite clear, and again, in historical context, that yeah, it's not. It's not. And I mean, Revelation is written by somebody who thinks it's going to come soon. And the problem is that people continue to, you know, many evangelicals and fundamentalists think it's still coming soon. And if you point out that, you know, well, John, you know, John said it was coming soon, but he was living 2000 years ago. Then they come up with, you know, things like, well, they quote uh, the book of Second Peter with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. I say, okay, well, if that's right, then, you know, if Jesus is coming in three days, you can start looking for him in 5,023. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, but, you know, yeah. So part of my argument in the book is that both Jesus and John of Patmos, the guy who wrote Revelation, agreed that the end was coming soon and that it'd be, it would bring destruction and it would bring salvation. But I think that, um, apart from the general apocalyptic framework that they shared with lots of other Jews in their day, uh, apart from that, they are radically different in how they understood it, and that John actually is not is not embracing Jesus' teachings at all. I think he's in fact arguing a, a contrary position to Jesus about about God, about love, and about how to live in this world, and and how to be. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, you point out. Well, there's two things there. Uh, one is you spent two, a bunch of chapters, which I was hoping uh, for, and they were there. Uh, you know, I used to have it, I've had a discussion with, with, with my friend Noam Chomsky about, about belief, you know, and I've been a vocal, I've been vocal about my views about belief. But, um, and he points out he doesn't care what people think, it's what they do that matters. And I, I can't help, of course, how can I disagree? The problem is that what people think affects what they do. And as you point out, in a wide variety of ways, misinterpreting revelations has resulted in bad actions. Those actions being um, uh, uh, everything from uh, from not buying into uh, uh, um, uh, climate change, uh, or you know, saying it doesn't matter. You know, humans aren't going to affect the earth because it's going to end soon. To other areas where where you're really actually um, 
hurting people in a real way. Uh, it, it's done this idea that the end's coming soon has done huge psychological damage to, I mean, I know a lot of evangelicals, ex-evangelicals who were psychologically damaged by the idea that Jesus is coming back soon and thinking they knew when it was going to happen. It didn't happen and just really messed up their heads. Sometimes it's led to huge violence. People don't realize that you know we're celebrating celebrating the 30-year anniversary of the Waco disaster. Yeah. And that was driven in large part by David Koresh's interpretation of Revelation as being fulfilled uh, in his day. Yeah, um, you talk about that in great detail. I was taken by that. And also, I mean, I knew that I hear, you know, I know you can't help but know if you follow the news, how evangelicals view Israel and it's and and the the Christian Zionism as being the fulfillment of the of a prediction from Revelations and but what I guess I hadn't realized so much was in some sense how that the Middle East is a source of constant strife in the world and and if you have to think of one place where the flame you know the spark might happen that would would cause much greater problem it's the Middle East but in some sense the Middle East was designed through the Balfour Declaration in some sense, by evangelicals to say, we want, before you can have the, the, the return, the second coming, you, we need Israel to be, the Jews to come back to Israel and the temple to be rebuilt. So the first step is to create an Israel. In some sense, that whole political problem arose because of a, of a, of a, of a belief in revelations and the predictions of the second coming. Yeah, so I, you know, in the book, I don't take a stand on the Israeli-Palestinian issue because that's yeah, it's that's just, too you know, that worms. Is, that, it's too messy. But uh, what I do do is explain the historical support of evangelicals for Israel, and even many evangelicals don't understand what the what the real roots are. And there there was Christian Zionism before there was what we think of as Zionism mm -hmm. um, in the 19th century, because Christians were convinced that the prophets had predicted that Israel had to be had to return to the land. And so um, they predicted that Israel had to come back, back to the land. And so the Balfour de Declaration is all rooted completely in that. Yeah. Um, but then there's another part of this, which you alluded to. In the New Testament, it indicates that the Antichrist figure who's going to rise up at the end of time is, uh, is going to go into the temple of Jerusalem and declare himself God. Well, there is no temple in Jerusalem. It was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70. And where the temple was is where the Dome of the Rock is now on the Temple Mount. And so fundamentalist Christians are convinced that Israel has to take over the, the, uh, the Temple Mount and destroy the Dome of the Rock, this, this very, very important Islamic holy place, and uh, build the temple again before Jesus can come back. Well, How's that going to happen exactly? Yeah, uh, right. without well, without really leading to World War Three. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. it's incredibly dangerous. Well, the the I want to move at the end here to something interesting because you point out the other aspect of Revelations, which is a, almost amusing if it weren't tragic, and it, and Waco is an example of that. Is each of the it's throughout history you have people who are saying, "I have evidence the end is near. I know what day." And you give great stories about people. Who say October, September twenty first? No, no, October twenty first. And uh, no, 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 the twenty second. And then, and that when it doesn't happen, you point out it doesn't matter. It people st they get more they get more convinced. And and you you explain in terms of a, a psychological study on cognitive dissonance. And and I I want to read this quote because it resonated me in, with me in a way that was slightly different than maybe you intended. You said if more people acknowledge you're right. It eases the psychological trauma 
of knowing that you're probably wrong. So you, so you set out to win over other devotees. To me, I, I can't help but think that that is part of the reason that church is necessary in general. My uh, Hugh Downs, who you and I know because we're old enough, Hugh Downs was a good, became a good friend of mine late in his life. And he said to me, that I think that's the reason you need to go to church every day because these stories are so ridiculous that you suspect in your heart at some level they're not true. And you need to overcome that psychological trauma by, 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 you know, being part of other, with others who believe that and, um, and then set out with, to win other devotees to convince them. So I think all of evangelicalism yeah. Yeah. in some sense is a reflection of the inherent insecurity that people have that this is probably nonsense. Mm. What do you think about that? It may, well, it may be, it may be right. I, I, I think there are probably ways to figure that out, but I don't know. Historians have shown that that's one of the reasons, they've argued at least, that's one of the reasons that Christianity took off in the first place. Um, because the, the followers of Jesus were expecting Jesus to be the Messiah who destroyed the Romans, and instead he got arrested and tortured to death publicly. <laughs> and to kind of deal with the dissonance between what they expected to happen and what did happen, they then changed the definition of what the messiah was and became missionary about it and then when the second coming didn't come the way they are expecting mm -hmm. it to come uh within their generation then they became more missionary to convince people and so it wouldn't be surprising to me if that's still part of what's going on today yeah i mean i you don't need uh, you don't need a we don't need to go every sunday to read quantum mechanics just one book you have to read it once and <laughs> <laughs> but you have to go every Sunday to hear the same stories over again. I think that reinforcing is required specifically because at some level, the cognitive dissonance that is religion. That's anyway, that's my, yeah, no, you read I, the quantum mechanics really book once, read yeah. the quantum mechanics book. Once you know, yeah, I'm never going to understand this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that. you know, you don't know understand, but you don't have to, but you don't have to reread. You don't have to go every Sunday and have, and, and, and <laughs> yeah, have do it over again. Right, and, right. and, and you either know you, do, yeah, not anyway, I really, so that, I think when I read that, I thought that sums up not just the problem mm. with people who predict the end of the world, but religion in general is is you need you need that constant reinforcement because most people, I suspect, realize these stories are just too wild. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, it, it that may be right, but you know, I think that most people don't have a scientific way of looking at the world and don't understand the need of evidence. And as you know, they don't believe in proof. And they think that people are just making stuff up and it's just because they're ignorant. You know, they're just, they, um, they're ignorant. And it, I don't think it's necessarily, they think that it's wrong. It's just, they don't, you know, they don't want to think about it much. Yeah. Most people, well, that's the point to come back again. I think people, as you point out, most people believe the Bible, but haven't read it because it's easy. I think it's a way of feeling uh, uh, for that reason. They told the census people that, that, that I don't need to know, believe in those details. It makes me feel a good person and something about it resonates with me, it, which is the has, last, sorry. It has huge implications. I mean, you know, right now with the abortion debate across the country, every everybody thinks that, you know, that uh, abortion is condemned in the Bible. And so you have these people, you know, parent, you know, picketing Planned Parenthood. And so even without taking a stand on abortion, the, the Bible says nothing about it. Yeah. It's not in there at all. But people wouldn't, you know, people don't read the Bible to find out. They just hear somebody quote some random verse out of context and say, oh, yeah, see, it condemns abortion. It's got nothing to do with abortion. 
And so uh, it has really big implications for our, but you know, you asked earlier why I get passionate about this stuff. Well, this is one of the reasons I think it ends up mattering. Oh, it, it does. And I, that's why I've, I've, I've enjoyed, I enjoy your work so much and respect it so much and why I've enjoyed having the chance to, to talk to you because I think it, you do well, as, as I said, you're doing God's work as Steve Weinberg would say, um, because, uh, because it, it is important for people to understand the context of something that affects so many, so many people's lives. But in, I, that's why I want to just end with the last question, which is a personal one in some sense. Um, and I hope you'll take it the right way, but, um, so you're right. Well, of course you're right, because you know these things. Abortion is mentioned in the Bible. But what is often mentioned in the Bible, in the Old Testament and New Testament, especially in Revelations, is that, you know, this God condones uh, atrocities. And that God, at least in the, in the sense of Revelation, is supposed to be Jesus. And Jesus talks about judgment. And, and, and you know, sure, and, and, you know, in the Old Testament, there's explicit violence. And as you point out, there's there's tons of explicit violence in, 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 in revelations. So, so yeah, Jesus talks about love the neighbor and, 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 and turn the other cheek, but he also basically said, you're going to be judged. And if you don't believe in me, you're, you're, you're not, you're, it's fundamentally a, a statement of fear of, 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 you know, believe in me to, because I'll make you afraid if you're not. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll kill your children or whatever, if, 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 if you don't as as is said in, in there explicitly so but you basically say you personally find you personally like jesus and the message and i'm wondering and i'm wondering is that a, is that a, is that because of is that just a remnant of a, of a long experience of finding that jesus helped make you a good person when you were younger or do you still as an intellectual exercise find jesus ultimately to be um a positive figure um, so it get, um, it's, my answer is a little bit complicated because, um, it's a little bit hard for people who, uh, to kind of get their mind around it, but the Jesus you described as out for blood. And if you don't believe me, you're going to be roasted. Uh, I absolutely do not, do not admire that Jesus. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't think that's what Jesus himself was like. Um, when I talk about appreciating Jesus and his message, I'm saying that as a historian mm -hmm. oh. who appreciates the conclusions of my historical research so that I don't think the God, the Jesus of revelation is at all like the historical Jesus was. I don't think the Jesus of the gospel of John was at all like the historical Jesus was, as we were talking about earlier, you know, you have these different sources and different and uh, different gospels and you have to figure out what's historically right. When I do that, just independently of what I, personally believe, which is, you know, nothing really about Jesus yeah. today. I just yeah. think he was a man. But apart from that, when I do that analysis, what looks to me is that Jesus did think the end was coming soon. Mm -hmm. You know, he was, and it's, you know, we, we absolutely can fault him for that. He was wrong. The end was not coming in his generation. That's completely wrong. Um, I, I give him, I cut him a little bit of a break on that for the same reason that I cut people a break today if they happen to be capitalists. Mm -hmm. okay. It's not as if they've got something else that they could see as a viable alternative. Yeah. I mean, it's not like, you know, they, they've heard about socialism. They think it's the same thing as Marxism. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, they don't, they, they, yeah. they grow up in a certain way. Yeah. Well, Jesus grew up in an apocalyptic environment. So I'm going to grant him that part of it. Okay. So, I, and I don't, I don't, I don't share his apocalyptic view, but, 
the way that apocalyptic view worked out for him was distinctive, I think, and not like these other people that we know about, not very much like them. I don't think Jesus said anything about anybody believing in him. I don't think that was part of the part of the pitch at all. Jesus did think that people needed to mend their ways. And especially he thought that the kinds of oppression and cruelty and injustice that was going on in the world uh, was not good and that people needed to turn away from that. And I think Jesus really did teach that you needed to treat other people well and that the way you would be approved by God and enter into the kingdom, which is, you know, if, if you get rid of all that mythology, if, if you really want to be the kind of human being that you should be, it is by giving of yourself for others and not just living a selfish, self-centered, self-aggrandizing life. And um, I don't do very good with that. <laughs> I'm extremely self-aggrandizing, but <laughs> I do like that message. And I, I like the idea that I should try to help people who are in need and just not try and screw over everybody so that I can get ahead. And I think Jesus really stood for that. Um, and I, th I think that he thought that those who helped those in need, whatever they believed, um, they were the people who were in the right. And that's what I believe. Well, all, all I can say is amen to that, um, uh, uh, in, literally and metaphorically. <laughs> um, no, I think, and I think that, uh, and I guess it's wonderful to, to I, first of all, I appreciate tremendously the time you've taken and, and the scholarship and the good you've done for all of us by helping us understand things. But I, I guess, uh, and the wonderful thing is that we can both agree with that, that philosophy. I argue that I arise there from reason and not faith. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. but the end result is, yeah. uh, is the same. And I'm, and, and, uh, no. and, and I, uh, I mean, look, anyway. Immanuel Kant, <laughs> Immanuel yeah. Kant, or, uh, you know, with deontological yeah. ethics or, or yeah. John Stuart Mill with you, yeah. you'll tell him this, these are not built on Christian premises, but they could lead to a very similar view. And so I'm, I'm good with that. And it probably is a remnant. I mean, this is what I, you know, Jesus is, you know, yeah. is my remnant, not, not yeah. Kantian philosophy. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, given your background, but it's nice to see we've come to the same place, and um, and I, you know, thanks. It has been such a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you, and I hope I did just some justice to to your your work. And I I really think that the the discussion we had, I hope it will get people thinking, which is the whole point of this, and and uh, and I uh, hope you enjoyed it as well. Well, I, I enjoyed it very much, and thank you, because it's really nice to talk to somebody who's just, uh, you know, a, a brilliant scholar in a completely different field, uh, but with, you know, can actually uh, uh, engage with what struck me as the really important questions for the kind of thing I do. So, oh, that's you. an honor. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.